Good morning to all. Please be seated. In the case of uh, Transportation Safety Board of Canada against Kathleen Carol Byrne et al. <clears throat> For the appellant, Transport Transportation Safety Board of Canada, Mr. David Taylor, Richard W. Norman, <clears throat> Alisa Holland. For the respondent, Air Canada Pilots Association, Christopher C. Rutham, Andrew Montag, Reynold, Adrienne Fanjoy. For the respondent, Air Canada, John Doe number one and John Doe number two, Clay Hunter. For the respondent, Airbus, Airbus SAS, Christopher Eubard, Emmanuel Poupard, Jesse Hartery, and Brittany Sirquois. For the respondents, Kathleen Carol Byrne, Asher Adara and George Leboy, Jamie Tornback, Raymond Wagner QC, Kate Boyle. For the respondent, NAV Canada, Stephen Ronan and Robert B. Bell. For the respondent, Halifax International Airport Authority, Michelle L. Che, Scott R. Campbell, Aaron J. McSorley. For the respondent, Attorney General of Canada, representing Her Majesty the Queen in right of Canada, John Provart. Please note there is a publication ban and confidentiality that exists in this matter, pursuant to subsection 28.6 of the Canadian Transportation Accident Investigation and Safety Board Act, and Rule 8506 of the Nova Scotia Civil Procedure Rules. Mr. Taylor. Good morning, Chief Justice, Justices. This appeal raises two questions of statutory interpretation related to the protection that Parliament intended to confer to onboard recordings like an airplane's cockpit voice recorder. First, the analysis the a court or coroner must adopt in deciding whether to pierce the CTAISB Act's onboard recording privilege. And second, the range of tools available to assist a motions judge or coroner in making that determination. The TSB submits that these questions must be answered in a way that respects Parliament's legislated policy choices in favoring transportation safety. The Transportation Safety Board of Canada is Parliament's instrument in the federal sphere for unearthing the causes and contributing factors of significant aviation, marine, railway, and pipeline transportation occurrences and, ac and accidents and making recommendations so that they do not happen again. To achieve this mission, Parliament has given the TSB a number of tools and protections. Primarily, the tools address the TSB's ability to get information, while the protections prevent most other actors with interests arising from transportation occurrences from accessing, accessing the fruits of the TSB's work. This appeal addresses one of those protections. My, my submissions this morning will cover three areas. First, the TSB's purpose and the architecture of the CTAISB Act, as that sets the context in which this statutory interpretation required in this case must be conducted. 
Second, the test for disclosure of onboard recordings under paragraph 28.6c of the CTASB Act, which the TSB says requires the party seeking disclosure to demonstrate exceptional circumstances in the litigation that cannot be overcome with the exercise of reasonable diligence. Put another way, these exceptional circumstances have to undermine the adversarial process in a way that can't be addressed by ordinary techniques and doctrines. And finally, whether the procedure in 28.6b of the CTAISB Act supports the TSB's request to make in-camera submissions in this case. While my submissions will be in English this morning, the appeal addresses certain questions of bilingual statutory interpretation. En conséquence, il me ferait plaisir de répondre à des questions en français dans le cas où... I will be happy to answer questions in English, in French, if there are questions. TSB and the CTASB Act's architecture. The TSB notes that for over 30 years, it has had exclusive jurisdiction over investigations into the causes and contributing factors of all aviation, marine, railway, and pipeline accidents and incidents that fall within the federal sphere. The TSB is not a regulator. Parliament has tasked it with doing this work entirely outside the context of the federal public administration. As set out in sections 7, 14, and 15 of the CTAISB Act, which are at tab 2 of the TSB's condensed book, the TSB's work takes place on the basis of investigations that produce reports. These reports identify safety deficiencies and make recommendations to correct them. In this work, it's important to note that the TSB gets to go first. No other federal entities get to examine accidents, causes, and contributing factors when the TSB is on the scene. And with the exception of the RCMP, the TSB's activities take precedence over non-safety-related federal actions related to accidents and incidents. Mr. Taylor, don't you think it's wise to, when you're stating the purpose, to very quickly remind us of the restriction that Section 7 places on the board? That is to say, it's not the function of the board to assign fault or determine civil or criminal liability. Um, you, no finding of the board shall be construed as assigning fault, and indeed, findings of the board are not binding. I mean, you, that, you, surely that's pretty key to what's going on here today. You, you've anticipated my next uh, submission, Justice Kazarer. Uh, th those restrictions uh, in the TSB's submission have to do with the preservation of the TSB's focus on safety. Uh, and the, the preservation of the TSB's focus on safety is important uh, because it separates the TSB's work, including the sources of evidence on which the work is based, from any criminal, civil, administrative, or disciplinary proceedings that arise uh, in the course of, uh, the, the, or that the flow from the transportation occurrence in question. And, and so the separation that you're referring to uh, comes from 7 sub, subsection 7.2's restriction on the TSB assigning fault or determining civil or criminal liability. And there's a corresponding restriction in section 7 sub 3 on construing the TSB's findings as assigning such fault. And subsection 7.4, of course, clarifies that the TSB's findings aren't binding on the parties to any other proceedings. So that, that, that's absolutely a, a, key, a key element of the architecture from the TSB Act. And that key element is reinforced by the balance of the statutory scheme, which establishes a system of privileges and special evidentiary rules that are enacted in the Act. Uh, those provisions on the special evidentiary rules and, and provisions are at tab 4C of our condensed book. Just by, by way of summary, 
The privileges cover results of medical examinations that are compelled by the TSB, representations by interested parties on draft TSB reports, onboard recordings, like in this case, witness statements given to the TSB investigators, and the identities of individuals reporting transportation occurrences. I guess my point in, so, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just want, just to follow up, my point was that here we have right at the core of the act, a reminder that we're not dealing with, with absolutes. So that when you end up pleading the privilege, that the statutory privilege, unlike some other privileges, is not an absolute one. And, and Parliament had in its mind from the get-go the kind of balancing that Section 28 has, uh, sends, us, sends us upon. Uh, par Parliament certainly had in its mind that other, other entities and actors are involved in, in events following from transportation occurrences, but, but it also had in its mind the importance of allowing, like I said, the TSB to go first, uh, and the importance of ensuring that the, T the TSB has uh, forthright and complete disclosure uh, from the parties. And, and, and I'll, get, I'll get to this when we, when we get to the Section 28 test in, in more detail, but uh, effectively what we see in the lower courts uh, is, and in the Air, Air France decision is a reweighing uh, of that policy choice by Parliament uh, of the importance of separating the TSB's work, in, including its sources, from civil litigation. Uh, and while there is an exception to the privilege, which is where the interests of justice require, the evaluation of that exception doesn't entail uh, reweighting the importance that Parliament has given to the privilege. It, it entails considering that privilege, which is a legislated policy choice, against the circumstances of the litigation that come before the Mr. court. Mr. Taylor, is the restriction in uh, Section uh, 72 of the Act is there a link between that and another uh, provision of the Act, which is 28-7, uh, where uh, the use of an onboard recording is prohibited in different proceedings, but also in legal proceedings? It's, it's a, there's a similar concept uh, at play, Justice Cote, but, but they aren't quite the same because Section mm -hmm. 7.2 addresses the ultimate object of the TSB's uh, investigations, which is a determination of what happened uh, and, and why and how to prevent it from happening again. And specifically, Parliament is carving out who is at fault uh, from that. Uh, 28.7 has to do with the admissibility of one of the sources of the TSB's evidence should it be produced in litigation. Uh, it's a protection uh, for the individuals who are involved, whether they're air traffic controllers or pilots, uh, as in this case, uh, or individuals working on the bridge of a ship or in a pipeline control room. And so 28.7 isn't about the TSB's own activities. It's the 7.2 is really aiming at the TSB's mandate and what job it's doing uh, in writing its reports. But it's important to clarify that 7.4, uh, you know, that says the findings aren't binding, uh, establishes that, that in addition to the restriction in 7.2 of the TSB getting into who is at fault, uh, the conclusions the TSB reaches aren't, uh, aren't to be taken and applied rotely. They are, uh, they are effectively, uh, they are, they are a, f a first look and other processes may reach different outcomes. Uh, but they're also not to be taken um, as, as items that can't be used at all because we know from section uh, seven sub three that, uh, that the board is not, uh, I'm sorry, from section seven sub, sub two that the board isn't to refrain from fully reporting on the causes and contributing factors me merely because fault or liability might be inferred from the board's findings. So the board's findings clearly have some, some role to play in the events that will unfold following the, uh, the, um, the report, even if it's contingent.
Right. Uh, picking up on a couple of questions by my colleague, Justice Kassira, um, what I see, and I think which is consistent with what you've said to us, is that this legislation is intended to provide a very carefully crafted role for the board and accident investigation, but to do so in a manner which is consistent with and does not impair or undercut other functions carried out, for example, by the courts. And the only point at which I might take a little bit of issue with you is that you seem to suggest that because the board goes in first, or perhaps I'm hearing something you haven't really said, that there's a hierarchy here, and that the interests of the board have to be served uh, and, and everything else is subordinated to it. Uh, because I don't see that. I see this as a scheme which is meant to be consonant among all of the purposes, albeit for practical reasons, the board has to be first on the scene. Certainly, the, the, um, the, the reference to the board going first, um, uh, as you say, it has to do with the, the, the way the investigation plays out. Uh, but, but the submission I'd make is, is there is a certain priority uh, that's being given here to, to some of the board's activities. In, so, in some cases, the priority is absolute. So, uh, for instance, in, the, in, the, in the, um, the case of representations on draft reports, those are privileged and there's no exception. Uh, and those would ordinarily be uh, items that would be relevant to civil litigation flowing in terms of the party's reactions to the Transportation Safety Board report uh, and the comments that they made. Uh, in other cases like witness statements and onboard recordings, there is an ability uh, for the court to pierce the privilege in appropriate cases. Uh, but where, where, I, where I say the idea of priority uh, comes in is, is the idea of what is an appropriate case. And, and that's fundamentally, and, I'll, this is, and I'm now turning to my submissions on 28.6c, uh, the error that we see in the court, courts below is to devalue the importance of the privilege by reweighing Parliament's uh, policy exercise, uh, firstly, and secondly, by overstating uh, the requirements of the public interest in the administration of justice. And, and that results in a test, which is in particularly in the context of a CVR, which is such excellent evidence um, that, uh, that, that leads to a tendency to disclosure, which isn't what Parliament intended in, in protecting these, these, uh, these pieces of evidence. And, and, and the way to consider Parliament's intention in, in my submission is to return to, uh, to the start. Uh, to what was the status of these onboard recordings at common law, because they existed before uh, the TSP's predecessor, the Aviation Safety Board, did. And, and we know this because in the Dubin Commission, uh, Justice Dubin uh, considers the, uh, the, uh, the, the common law protection to these CVRs and finds that really it's in the nature of a, a public interest immunity or the Wigmore privilege, the four-part case-by-case test. And, uh, and, and in, that, in that situation, he, he recommended, uh, ultimately, that there be a statutory privilege that would involve, uh, that would involve the, the, uh, and the, the quote is, weighing the, the, the public interest in the administration of justice against the public interest in maintaining confidentiality. And of course, that, that echoes uh, to a great deal the fourth step of the Wigmore test, uh, but it's not the language that Parliament adopted. And, and we have the full text of Section 28, uh, under tab five of our condensed book. And in English, the language adopted was in the circumstances of the case that the public interest in the proper administration of justice outweighs in importance the privilege attached. And in French, it's dans les circonstances de l'espèce, uh, 
l'intérêt public d'une bonne gestion de la justice à prépondérance sur la protection qu'on fait. Is unlike the Wigmore-esque uh, language that Justice Dubin suggested. Uh, it's language that doesn't contemplate reweighing or reanalysis of the purpose or importance of the CVR's confidentiality. It, its focus instead is on whether the requirements of the proper administration of justice override the privilege. Indeed, the, the French version uh, of the statute doesn't use the word importance at all, uh, or any language that evokes the court uh, conducting an exercise to weight or give some kind of weight to the, uh, to the privilege. It talks about the circonstances de l'espèce, uh, which relates to the intérêt public d'une bonne administration de la justice. It's about public interest for the good administration of justice. Court and what's required for trial fairness. And so in this regard, the TSB strongly disagrees uh, with the respondent representative plaintiff's characterization of this test as being a discretionary one. And that's at paragraphs 81 to 91 of their factum. Uh, the court must uphold the privilege that parliament mandated. And that, that's not a privilege that involved re-questioning the basis on which uh, privilege was, uh, was afforded. So in, in considering the, 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 the um, in considering the, uh... Mr. Taylor, I'm gonna ask you, you to, while you're thinking, Go back on the, your, your reading of the French text, which you, you're suggesting it's saying something different. I do appreciate the words aren't precisely, it's not literal translation, but you, you mentioned les circonstances so, so, de l'espèce apply differently in the French and the English. How do you see that? No, the, the, the circumstances of the case and the circonstances de l'espèce in, in my submission do the same work. It's, it's, more, the, uh, it's more the use of the word uh, importance. And so the, the French and the English are, are a little bit uh, difficult to line up because the French is in a single block as opposed to being broken down in three paragraphs. Uh, but in C, uh, we, we, they, they speak of, of the, concludes in the circumstance of the case that the public interest in the proper administration of justice outweighs in importance the privilege attached. And so this is the, the phrase I'm, I'm, I'm catching on, is outweighs in importance. So is, is that, is that, uh, so the, I guess the, the real question, you mentioned bilingual interpretation at the front end, is there a discordance here that has an effect in law? Yes, yeah, the discordance I would submit, and this is the, the sil conclu, which starts about halfway through the paragraph on the French side of the page. This is under tab five uh, in the TSB's condensed book. So the discordance here is, s'il conclut dans les circonstances de l'espace que l'intérêt public d'une bonne administration de la justice a prépondérance sur la protection conférée à l'enregistrement. And, and so the exercise that we see in particular uh, Justice Strathy uh, conduct in the Air France uh, case and, uh, and was adopted by the Chamber's judge in the Court of Appeal in this case is one in which the, the, essentially the court arrives to section 28 sub 6C with, as a blank slate, it, it must decide what is the importance of the proper administration of justice and what is the importance of the privilege. And then based on the weight it determines for those two factors must conduct uh, a balancing exercise. A and the TSB's submission is that we, we know what the importance of the privilege is. The importance of the privilege is to protect pilot privacy and to promote the integrity of the TSB's safety investigations. And we know this because of the, the, the process that Parliament has gone through in the legislative history, but also the broader purpose of the Act, which is to carve the TSB out from the administration of justice so that it can conduct safety investigations. 
and in Canada, safety investigations are effectively to be a safe space for those involved. They are not fault-based. Uh, they should uh, be ones in which individuals participate so that we get at the causes and contributing factors of an occurrence. So the TSB has full ability to make recommendations to prevent them from happening again. And so be because of that important priority, it's not for the court to arrive and say, well, Parliament was wrong uh, in, in the way that it structured this privilege or in the assumptions that it made. Uh, we had, uh, you know, the, 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 the respondents point a number of times to, uh, to, uh, to Justice Dubin and his commentary on, uh, on, uh, on, on what was a reasonable basis or not for, for establishing the privilege. And, and we have that at uh, tab 6B of our condensed book. And I'll just, uh, I'll just turn it up here. And so this is in, from the Aviation Safety Commission's uh, report. And it's over on the last page of the tab. And it's the last paragraph before the heading for use in criminal proceedings. And so Justice, Justice Dubin says it cannot be assumed that the information provided by a cockpit voice recorder would cease to be available if portions of it are held to be necessary in civil proceedings as a result of a ruling by a judge that the interests of justice require it. It would be undesirable to create a privilege on the ground that those seeking it would otherwise not obey the law. And in my submission, this is linked to the wording I had noted uh, earlier, which is highlighted uh, further up the page in which Justice Dubin was proposing that what be weighed is the public interest in the administration of justice against the public interest in maintaining confidentiality. Uh, but the wording that Parliament has selected is, uh, is emphasizing that it's the privilege that is the, 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 the uh, is the privilege that must be pierced or overridden and not the public interest in confidentiality. And so there's, there's not a role for the court here in returning to the privilege and reconducting uh, the policy exercise that the uh, that that Parliament has done in enacting the legislation, and, and and that's just to return to the to the point I was making on the French, the, the absence of the word importance and the word uh, the use of the word prépondérance is is we're really looking at an override uh, provision here. We're looking at whether the circumstances of the case, as they relate to the interest public interest in the admi proper administration of justice, justify overriding the privilege. Surely, prépondérance should be matched with outweighs. Yes, out, outweighs and prépondérance go together. But uh, where, where I'm going to is this idea of the court needing to conduct for itself an evaluation of the privilege's importance when we know what that importance is uh, from, from this, the, the scheme of the act and the context in which it was enacted. And, and so really that, that's a submission from the TSB that there was an error in the courts below in reevaluating the importance of the privilege. Uh, essentially, it took, it took the importance of the privilege as being open to debate as opposed to a policy choice that was made by Parliament. And, and the result of this reweighing exercise, and that's, that's seen at, uh, at tab 6E of the TSB's condensed book, is a conclusion effectively that the uh, that the privilege attached uh, to, the, uh, to, the, to the onboard recording is low, or the value of the privilege attached to the onboard recording is low. Uh, but that analysis that, uh, that reaches a conclusion that it's unlikely uh, that these, uh, that these uh, feared of circumstances are going to come to pass, uh, it's, it's something that Parliament would have had in mind when it enacted uh, this statute. This, this enacting exercise happened after Justice Dubin's uh, report, and the par and Parliament selected different words. Uh, than those that were suggested by Justice Dubin. Mr. Taylor, could I see, just to see if I've understood your argument, is it that uh, some of the comments in Air France of Justice Stradisi then was, and then adopted uh, in this case, 
Some of the comments are related to disclosure in this case and the chilling effect in this case, but some of the comments really go beyond uh, this case and really become general matters of general application in any case. Uh, so, for example, paragraph 135 of Justice Stravi's decision, uh, he does talk about the great having great difficulty accepting disclosure in this case would have a chilling effect and then talks uh, more generally as if uh, pilots generally uh, are responsible and wouldn't, uh, uh, wouldn't uh, curtail their conversations because of the risk of disclosure. Is that, is that the point? That, 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 that's part of the point, uh, Justice Jamal. It's, it's that it's a generic conclusion that's been applied, and, and it's the same generic conclusion that Parliament had before it in the Avi Aviation Safety Commission's report, as a, and as I'm planning on turning to in a moment, in the 1994 Review Commission's uh, report. Um, but but it, go, it goes further than the generic conclusion, and it's, it's really it's, it's a disagreement with Parliament's uh, policy choice. And, uh, and it's, it's a similar disagreement uh, that we see in the Scottish uh, Lord Advocate case that's cited by, uh, by the representative uh, plaintiffs in which, again, it's, it's this, this view of the unlikelihood uh, of, um, of, of the feared consequence, which is the, the pilots making, uh, making different, uh, different statements or acting differently in the cockpit, uh, which is going to provide you know, less, less safety evidence uh, on the CVR recording. And, and it's, it's uh, in, in my submission, it's not consistent with a safety-focused approach, which is how the TSB is public safety, litigate, uh, public, public safety legislation uh, should be in interpreted. Uh, safety-focused approaches are ones that, uh, that anticipate or, or um, uh, that anticipate or um, uh, uh, attempt to identify uh, potential risks uh, that should be mitigated as opposed to waiting to be convinced, uh, which is the, the wording that, uh, that is used in the courts below, is that they're not convinced uh, that the, uh, the, this is Justice, uh, the, the Chamber's judge, that they're not convinced uh, that, the, uh, that the pilots would alter their conduct. Uh, Safety-focused approaches see an apprehended risk and then impose uh, mitigate, mitigative measures uh, in advance. And, and just, just to pause here on, on the, the importance uh, of the CVR as safety uh, evidence. It's, it's important to note that, uh, that the CVRs are excellent ev evidence. They are contemporaneous recordings of the events that happened uh, shortly before a transportation occurrence. Uh, but it's excellent actually, evidence that actually, only comes into being. You have to, I think there's a precision that needs to be brought here. They're excellent recordings of what was said. What happened is in the data recorder, is it not? The flight data recorder. That that's correct. You, you would have in the CVR uh, indications of uh, you know of, of sounds in the cockpit as opposed to, to not just what was said or communications that came in, but the point at which or the various altitudes at which events occurred and the times that they occurred would be in the FDR, uh, which is not a privileged uh, um, source of evidence. It's uh, it's it's evidence that's available to uh, to the parties. Uh, and just just briefly before I return to to my submission on on the the importance of the privilege, uh, just the other thing to note is that this this evidence, uh, the CVR, uh, for that matter, the FDR, uh, they only exist uh, because they've been installed for the purpose of helping reconstruct ev events leading to uh, an aircraft accident. Litigation-related purposes are ancillary uh, to the reason that they exist. Uh, the use that the parties in this case want to put the CVR to, which is to help establish causation in the context of multiple cross-claims between defendants, isn't the reason that these CVRs were put in the cockpit in the first place. But is that, is that really true? I mean, that comes back to the point I made earlier. 
Implicit in what you're saying is that everything here is about the operation of the Transportation Safety Board. Everything else is subordinate to it. The only reason we have these devices here is, is, is for accident investigation and, and for recommendations that can assist in avoiding accidents in future. But is that really accurate? Are these devices not put in for a variety of purposes, the principal one of which may well be uh, transportation safety and accident investigation, but they also serve other purposes, which brings me back to my earlier point, should not the legislation be read as, 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 as being consonant with a variety of purposes, albeit providing a proper basis for the safety board to carry out its unique role? I, 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 would, I would disagree with that justice role because the, 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 the genesis of the onboard recording is actually these, is, is, is actions uh, outside of legislation in the 1970s. It's a, the, uh, I think Justice said, Gautier and Hyde Park refers to it as a social contract uh, between the carriers and the pilots. These devices would be allowed to operate uh, in the cockpit. Uh, but more material to the modern approach, I would say, is the recent changes we saw in the Railway Safety Act having to do with locomotive voice and video recorders. And in those cases, it's, it's very clear that the presence of those recording instruments in locomotive cabs is safety related. Uh, we, we cover this in our factum in some detail, uh, but there are a number of exceptions to uh, or a number of uh, legislated mechanisms by which they can be used, but they're all for safety related purposes or finding threats to uh, railway safety. They don't have to do with uh, with uh, with civil litigation that that falls to uh, the that falls to the kind of um, uh, the kind of exercise in this case about piercing the privilege and so it's it's really a, a, a outside of the transportation safety context it's a superordinate interest uh, with respect to trial fairness that's that is the place where uh, it can be pierced and so essentially it's the availability of this uh, this excellent excellent evidence can mitigate uh, a serious uh, a serious problem in uh, in in another process as opposed to it being one source among many is that many that are available to the parties if it was just to be one source of many available to the parties we, we wouldn't have a privilege uh, privilege implies uh, privilege connotes uh, that the that the disclosure is going to be the exception and it not being part of those other other proceedings is the rule and, and just just returning to the uh, to the importance of the privilege in my submission that uh, that that parliament had this 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 view before it uh, in enacting and maintaining the legislation that the privilege was somehow not important um, in 1994 uh, the tsb act went through a review it was a mandatory statutory review uh, required when it was enacted and uh, one of the comments of the review commission was essentially that the uh, the TSB Act's priv privileges were illusory and of little value, and they recommended uh, doing away with the privileges and re replacing them with an alternate regime. And, and that those comments are at tab 6D of our condensed book. Uh, but none nonetheless, Parliament gave further emphasis to the privilege in 1998 when it made amendments uh, flowing uh, from this review exercise when they further limited the use of CVRs by uh, in 28.7, subsection 28.7, rendering them inadmissible in civil proceedings against certain actors. And so it's, it's a reinforcement of the privilege as opposed to a departure, in, you know, even though there were pretty clear statement from the Review Commission. Uh, that they they didn't view these privileges as valuable. Valuable. So so again, it's it's a decision by Parliament uh, that it's found value in these privileges, and that's confirmed uh, at tab six F of our condensed book. We have uh, excerpt from Hansard in which both the government sponsor and the opposition critic 
uh, for the amending legislation in the House of Commons are indicating specific support for limiting the use of CVRs in civil proceedings. So, Mr. Taylor, what should be the test according to you? Because you, seem, you, you, you disagree with the test in Air France because you say, uh, I acknowledge that uh, the CVR is highly uh, relevant and reliable evidence. Nobody is disputing that. But uh, knowing that the Parliament decided to uh, protect this uh, through uh, the privilege mechanism, so, and in Air France, when we read Air France, we see that there was a lot of focus on reliability, re relevance and reliability. So what should be the test because for the weighing exercise, because the parliament left the door open to that exercise, uh, knowing that it is a highly relevant and reliable evidence. So what should be the test according to you? So, so according to the TSB, the test should be the same long-standing test that's worked with no difficulty for witness statements. And that's that the party seeking disclosure has to show exceptional circumstances in the litigation that can't be overcome with the exercise of reasonable diligence. And, and to try and provide some clarification, the, these go to trial fairness and to uh, you know, items that the, the adversarial process can't uh, overcome. And, and there's a lot of emphasis uh, when considering the public interest in the administration of justice in the courts below of effectively, uh, of effectively the certainty that the CVR uh, would, would provide. And at, at tab 9A of our condensed book, we've got a, a, a reference to paragraph 67 of the Chamber's judge's uh, decision, which is in his concluding paragraphs. And he speaks there of the CVR uh, being able to provide a complete understanding of the crew, flight crew's awareness and response to factors that were signif significant to the decision to land the aircraft in the conditions existing at that time. And, and this view echoes uh, Justice Strathy's finding in Air France at paragraph 127, uh, where he says there's a public interest in ensuring that the information available to the court in the performance of this important responsibility is as complete and reliable as possible. And, and with respect to the courts below and to, to Justice Strathy as he then was, uh, trial fairness doesn't require a complete understanding of events. Uh, there are many elements of the adversarial process that operate without difficulty in the absence of a complete understanding. Indeed, the balance of probability standard itself operates in terms of greater likelihoods as opposed to certainty. And, and it's important to recall that all, almost all litigation plays out without a contemporaneous record of the facts. Our adversarial system provides both parties with a number of tools to prove their case and requires the trier of fact as a neutral decision maker to determine whose version of events is most likely true. And decisions made at trial are fair even where there is no complete certainty as to, as to the facts. And in this regard, the, then, Mr. The, Taylor, when uh, witnesses uh, do not recall what happened in the cockpit, let's say that well, there is a discovery and uh, the crew, they don't recall uh, what was said in the cockpit. Is, it, uh, the, is the balance of prob probability standard uh, settles the issue or uh, is it uh, in, uh, an element in favor of disclosure? So, so the, the, the submission of the TSB on that point is that the frailty of human memory is something that is common uh, to the civil litigation process. Uh, it's something that has to be dealt with uh, by the ordinary tools uh, of, um, of, uh, of the litigation process. And, and these ordinary tools include things like witnesses refreshing their memory. Uh, it includes things like the ability to adopt a past recollection recorded. Uh, it includes you know, preferring the evidence of a witness who does remember or has a, a greater ability to recall. Th these are all things that trial judges have to deal with 
uh, on, on an ordinary basis. And, and to contextualize it in this case, we've, we've included uh, on, in our condensed book under tab, uh, under tab 11, uh, there's a chart that was prepared by the respondent Airbus uh, in the court below to highlight essentially uh, information from the TSB report uh, that was uh, or reflected items that the pilots uh, couldn't recall in their discovery. And, and what we've, we've done in this tab is to, to, to indicate, you know, that the nature of the, uh, of the ability or the, the nature of the, um, uh, of the, of the, the inability to recall of the, uh, of the pilots. And, and effectively, what we see here is we see witnesses doing their best uh, to piece together uh, what had happened. We see refreshing memory based on the TSB report, in some cases adopting uh, what the TSB said, in some cases having an incomplete uh, you know, recollection of when in the flight something may have happened, but remembering a significant point, like there was a discussion around the level of fuel, or knowing that something had happened, but not being certain when. And, and obviously, these are just examples uh, that are in, the, uh, that are in the, uh, the, the condensed book. And there are other instances where, in which the pilots don't have a recollection. But the, 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 the submission is that the focus on those gaps, uh, without considering their impact on trial fairness, uh, because of the essentially um, position taken or the, the conclusion reached uh, that what the public interest in the administration of justice requires is certainty uh, is something that led the courts below into error. There has to be some kind of, uh, of undermining of the process. And, and the, that, that's how it has evolved in the witness statements uh, context under Section 30 sub 5. And, and we have a, a, a recent summary of that from the, court, uh, the Superior Court in Quebec. And that's under uh, tab... That's under tab 10A in our condensed book. And, uh, and in that case, the court, uh, the court finds, it's, it emphasizes the nature of the exceptional circumstances test. And it, uh, paragraph 42 notes, uh, il s'est développé au fil des ans un certain consensus parmi les décideurs qui ont eu à se pencher sur des demandes relatives à la levée du privilège que celui qui la requiert à le fardeau de démontrer des circonstances exceptionnelles, rares, spéciales ou inhabituelles ou encore or motif impérieux de communiquer la déclaration. Uh, and then moving on, they, uh, they, they speak about, um, uh, they speak about the, the references to, you know, an inability to rem remember quoi que ce soit, uh, essentially an inability to remember anything at all. And, and certainly you could see that in a transportation occurrence uh, you know, as a result of post-traumatic stress uh, or other, uh, other incidents, perhaps injury. Uh, and in, in some, some tragic cases, death of the operator, where that evidence simply isn't available. Uh, but that's not the case. Uh, that's not the case here. And, and there were other alternatives, including the use of the flight data recorder uh, and possibly even the, uh, the use of their witness statements to refresh their memory. And, and, and those witness statements were available uh, to, to the pilots without piercing the privilege, uh, as under the TSB regulations, uh, a, a, a declarant of a statement can request a copy uh, without, uh, without piercing the privilege. And in that case, uh, the refreshing of the memory would be in our submission equivalent to using litigation privilege notes uh, to prepare for discovery. And, and in our submission, the, the evidence in the, under, under, um, uh, under discovery uh, shows an ability of these witnesses to, to refresh their memories in some cases based on the TSB report. And we know, we know that the TSB did not play the CVR uh, to, these, uh, to these witnesses in the course of working with them in preparing the report. Uh, it was interviews that happened shortly after the fact alone. Is the privilege over, Mr. Taylor, is the privilege over witness statements on, on all fours with the privilege we're speaking of here? One might have thought it should be stronger and that it requires 
cooperation of, from a witness after the accident. It, it, I'm not sure it's a perfect comparison. Well, the, the comparison in, in my submission comes from the, the fact that the, the legislation uses identical wording uh, for both piercing, privilege, uh, piercing provisions. Uh, really, the only material difference between uh, the two in terms of how Parliament has enacted it is the TSB's absence uh, from, the, uh, from the process with witness statements. In, in, uh, as 28 refers specifically to the TSB participating, whereas under Section 30, the TSB uh, doesn't have a right to participate, although certainly it has intervened uh, as, a, as a friend of the court uh, in those circumstances. They're not, they're and, not, and, they're not identical. That, that's, that, I, I, I don't mean to... It strikes me that they're not identical, and even the way in which the Act speaks to them, whether you take importance or simply la protection conférée à l'enregistrement. The protection given to the recording. Language or not, it's contextualized around the nature of the privilege and its purpose. It's not, it's not going to be just this exactly, for, for example, for a memory point, exactly the same process. I, well, my, my submission, uh, Justice Kazer, has to do with, with the wording uh, that, that, the, that the, the Parliament has selected. And so it's, again, it's in the circumstances. I'm just at tab 4, uh, 4C of the condensed book. It's in the circumstances of the case, the public interest in the proper administration of justice outweighs in importance the privilege attached to the statement. And so they're using the same statutory language, uh, is my point. Uh, and in terms of the, the, the different differential weight, well, that, that returns to my earlier submission that the, the Parliament has selected the importance uh, to go to these statements. And it's not, uh, it's not the role of the court to, to reweight them through its own, uh, its own interpretation exercise of the importance of these statements. In, in both cases, the purpose of the statement is to, the purpose of the privilege is to protect the, T, the integrity of the TSB's safety investigation by keeping its sources uh, separate insofar as is possible without compromising uh, the proper administration of justice from the civil litigation process. There, there is a suggestion in, in your submissions uh, that you have a contrasting a, a, an accurate and uh, faithful reading of the legislation which emanates from the Transportation Safety Board and a sort of an errant or rogue meaning given to it by the courts. This privileges the, the Safety Board as, a, as, as an institution to interpret legislation. I think that really is the role of the courts. Um, so I think what you need to do as opposed to saying, it's up to you of course, um, here's, the, here's the correct basis and here's where, uh, what the court put forward. I mean, I think you have to tell us how it is that the court erred. I mean, you're, you're just asking us to assume that the court erred. I, I mean, uh, of course, the interpretation of a statute is a question of law and therefore reviewable on a, a stand of correctness. But your, your, your submissions almost seem to be calling for us to uh, almost dismiss what has been uh, set out below. I mean. Can you take us to the passages, perhaps you've been doing it and I simply haven't followed it, where here's where the court made its mistake? So the, in our submission, the, the, cl the clearest indication of where, where the courts have, have, gone, uh, have gone astray in this, and, and there's no intention to imply there's any rogue uh, actors in the judicial system. It's, it's more the, the, the submission is that Parliament has made the choice as to the, the importance of the privilege as a policy matter and has made that choice despite... Uh, 
other elements in the legislative history suggesting the privileges weren't important. In the face of those suggestions, it maintained the privileges. But how it plays out in the test, that, that's in, in, uh, in, uh, in, in, the, in the chamber's judge's decision. It's paragraphs uh, 67 and 68. Uh, and in 67, this is on the side of the, uh, this is at tab 9A of our condensed book. It's on the inside of the, the, the this is on the side of the administration of justice. He finds the information is important to having a complete understanding of the crew's awareness and response to factors that were significant to the decision to land the aircraft in the conditions existing at the time. So the error there in the TSB submission is finding that what is required by the proper administration of justice is a complete understanding. Uh, as, I, as, I, as I said a few moments ago, it's the, tr the, tri the trial fairness and the adversarial process uh, can, can, can accommodate and comprehend uh, the weaknesses in witness memory and a lack of certainty as to exactly what happened. Litigation almost always plays out without contemporaneous events. Can, can, I, can I sort of, can, following up on Justice Rowe, um, and this is all very helpful, but what would be particularly helpful for me is to understand, is to, to know your submission about the balancing itself that was performed by the chamber's judge and in particular um, what consideration uh, the judge gave to the importance of the privilege to 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 that side of the balancing and that, that's that's that was my next submission justice brown so th thank you we for, keep anticipating for pushing, you. I'm pushing sorry. me along there yeah. uh, and th that's in the next paragraph paragraph 68 under 9 uh, a in our condensed book and it says notwithstanding the able arguments to the contrary i'm not convinced that the release of the CVR under the very stringent conditions proposed would interfere with aviation safety, damage relations between pilots and their employers, or would impede investigation of aviation accidents. And, and this is again uh, reflecting the generic conclusion that's been reached that pilots aren't going to modify uh, their conduct in the cockpit. And so the result of that is that you have a, an importance of the privilege that is effectively not important. It's a very low importance and then a very high importance on uh, the interest in the administration of justice by putting the standard as being towards certainty as to what's happened uh, in the cockpit. And so that really skews the nature of the balancing exercise. And, and in our submission, a more appropriate test uh, is the test applicable for, for witness statements, uh, which is uh, the exceptional circumstances test. It, it, uh, it, it, it accords with Parliament's broader intention that it is going to be a rare thing that safety-related uh, evidence is going to come and find its way into a civil uh, or a criminal courtroom. Mr. Taylor, your exceptional and rare circumstances test was specifically considered by the Court of Appeal in Air France, as you know, in paragraph 20, and rejected because the statutory language doesn't call for exceptional circumstances. It doesn't talk about it being rare. It talks about it being a case-by-case -case balancing. So really, you're taking us back to the statutory language, but you're asking us to effectively read an exceptional circumstances or rarity test into the provision? Well, the, the, the exceptional nature in, in my submission uh, comes, comes from uh, the role of the TSB in this process in which we see, you know, Parliament has done in my submission an exceptional thing. It has created an entity, a federal statutory entity, that it has carved out from the administration of justice. It has said it has no role to play in assigning fault. It has created a number of privileges around its work. Uh, it has made its investigators you know, not, uh, not competent or compellable witnesses, and it's made its opinions uh, inadmissible in court. And so the, the reading the, the language in 28.6c in isolation from the broader scheme of the Act, which is really to create a separate environment in which causes and contributing factors are determined uh, and recommendations are made uh, as a result, 
Uh, it's really that broader context where the exceptional circumstances arise from. And the idea that what we're looking at is, is something that's putting at stake uh, the public interest in the proper administration of justice, which again, given the adversarial, uh, the nature of the adversarial process is something that's something quite significant uh, would have to, uh, to arise to put in jeopardy. Mr. Taylor, can I take you back to the interpretation of um, Section 28.6b? And your position is that the board has a right, a right in all cases to make submissions in camera for, for the policy reasons that you've given as well as uh, for your, um, uh, the, the scheme of the, of the act. What purpose, what policy purpose would be, um, would be undermined if that was a matter of discretion for the trial judge? Um, and, and I guess I'm, thinking about the instance here where the trial judge said he, he made a finding that he had no difficulty understanding the contents of the privileged information from his own review. Is there something about the nature of the recordings or the nature of the board that would require um, the submissions be made um, even where the judge believes they've understood, they don't need assistance in understanding the significance of the tape? Or is this a case of not knowing what you don't know? Um, what what are your submissions um, for the on that? Uh, so, so with respect to twenty eight six B, your phrasing, Justice Karakatsanis, or your your statement of you know not knowing what you don't know that that that's really uh, where the TSB says Parliament's purpose in in including uh, or, or the purpose of interpretation of twenty eight six B in including a role. Uh, for the TSB to make submissions in camera, uh, whether as a matter of right or as a matter of discretion of the judge, it's it's to assist the judge uh, in in their review right. of the onboard recording. So, so um, you're accepting this, that it could be discretionary, not mandatory. I understood your your position position to be that there was an absolute right in every case to make. Certainly, uh, that 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 is the that is the position of the TSB in terms of the purposive interpretation of 286B. 286B exists to. Uh, effectively pierce the privilege to give the court or the coroner uh, access to the onboard recording and to ensure that the TSB is a participant uh, in, uh, in, in the proceedings. And uh, in our submission, uh, the, the reason that Parliament has, has, uh, has done that is to give, is to add value uh, to the court's or coroner's review of the onboard recording. And the only way that that value fully uh, is, is given is if the TSB can, can speak uh, to the contents of the CVR. And, and, and that, that is where the, the, the position that it is something that should happen uh, in, 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 um, if, if necessary in every proceeding. It may not be, the TSB may not request it in every proceeding. Um, there's still the ordinary uh, principles of proportionality in, in, in litigation that are at play. Uh, but in cases where, uh, like here, the TSB was seeking to essentially provide the court with a coded uh, transcript of the CVR indicating all of the other places, uh, or all of the other sources rather, uh, for the information in the CVR. Uh, that's something that can't be done unless the TSB can speak candidly, um, and the TSB can't speak candidly if it has to speak uh, in open court. So, so, so Mr. Taylor, on that, I would like to clarify, and uh, some people, some parties are saying that you will change your position from uh, the chamber's judge until here. So when, what you want is to be able to be alone in the courtroom with the judge. Correct. Correct. So it's effectively, it's, and it's you're a not saying we don't submission. want to proceed without giving notice to uh, our uh, to our friend on the other side. They can give, they can get notice, but we want to be alone with the judge in the courtroom to make our submissions. 
correct, correct. So it's it's a oh, apologies. And is there a way that you can make the submissions? Because given the fact that the chamber's judge has listened to the recording, is there a way the board can make its submissions in a meaningful way, uh, in referring to uh, in general to not the specific content, but to parts of the recording? Uh, because the other side will, the, the person who is requesting production, they will want to respond and they need to know something in order to respond. Is there a way for the board to make those submissions in that way? It, Justice Cote, it will, it will depend on the facts of the case. Um, in, in situations like this case, in which the submissions that the board sought to make were all to do with the, the alternate sources of information, uh, for for the evidence on the CVR, it will be very difficult for the TSB to do that uh, with specificity if it has to do that in open court. It can point, as it did in this case, it can point to the FDR, uh, it can point to uh, to elements in the TSB report, but it's difficult to say, well, uh, when the pilot said it at this point, um, Mm -hmm. you know, there, was, there was a concern about, uh, about, um, about you know, whatever factor might be at play, and, and here is the place you can, you can see that, then pointing to the alternate source will unveil uh, the content of the CVR. And so it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it, it's, it's a situation where, for instance, if the, if the issue is that the pilot is, is deceased, um, that is something where the issues about the, the importance of the privilege versus the proper administration of justice don't touch the content of the CVR in the same way. So it, it very much depends on the content. Um, but, but just to, to emphasize uh, something you said in one of your, your questions, Justice Cote, that the TSB's submission is not that it would proceed on no notice uh, to the parties or that the, the court should in some way be contacting the TSB receiving those submissions without the other parties knowing that this is going on. Uh, it's very much more like the two-stage process the court describes in Bassey about informer privilege in which there is a, a first stage in-camera hearing uh, and then a second stage at which there are more broad submissions. And in, 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 our, in our submission, the, the court's inherent jurisdiction uh, can go to those, uh, can, can, can introduce measures that go to the fairness concerns uh, that the parties might note. There could be, as in Bassey, questions suggested before the hearing, uh, the appointment of amicus uh, to attend the in-camera hearing and make submissions on behalf of those not present. And then, of course, public, public submissions after the fact uh, with respect to the test, although those obviously wouldn't uh, have the same level of detail on the content of the CBR yeah. as those that would happen behind yeah. now, uh, closed used, doors. Now, you've used in-camera and ex parte in a, in a way that is almost interchangeable, but they're not interchangeable, are they? No, and no, I, I agree, Justice Drew, they aren't. Um, and, and, and this is very much not... In our submission, um, while the word ex parte and in camera have been used interchangeably at different points by different parties uh, in this litigation, uh, the, the substance here is that it is a portion of the proceeding uh, that would occur without the presence of the other parties. That portion of the proceeding would be on notice uh, to the other parties. And so, uh, you know, ex parte proceedings, you know, some are both ex parte and in camera. Uh, Inter partes proceedings may have an in-camera portion. Uh, the, the substance here is really uh, being able to address the content. Uh, the I'm, content I'm grateful of the for your instruction in these matters, but mine was a preparatory comment. And that is just to follow up on what Justice Karakatsanis, I think, posed to you, and that was, is this a matter, whether it's ex parte or not, of the discretion of the judge? I understood the substance of your answer, and correct me if I'm wrong, it isn't a question of the discretion of the judge. It's the discretion of the safety board because it is their right to uh, appear before the judge ex parte if they see fit. So to put it in a, in, a, in a nutshell, not the judge's discretion, 
rather the boards? We would say it's, 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 it's Parliament's procedure um, that's been set out in 28.6b, um, and the procedure may or may not be required uh, depending on the facts of the case. Um, certainly in the alternative, if, uh, if the court were to find uh, that 28.6b is not read that way, uh, it's certainly our submission that as a matter of the court's inherent jurisdiction uh, and control over its own process, for that matter, the, cor the coroner's implied jurisdiction, uh, they could receive uh, submissions on that basis. So, so no, it's not, it's not a unilateral right. The TSB is, is saying it's created. It's something that's in, that's in the statute Parliament has created. In 28.6b, Parliament is giving uh, the court access to the in-camera, uh, uh, to the CVR to, an, to analyze and study in-camera. And it's also providing uh, a role for the TSB in the proceedings. And the, 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 the way that the TSB is, is, is able to assist the court fully in understanding this, the CVR is by being able to make candid submissions, which can't be done uh, in the presence of the other parties without piercing the privilege. To say uh, and, that, and just uh, on, on, sorry, Justice Kote. Add to your submissions because you 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 made some submissions before the chamber's judge, but uh, you say that you could not uh, make meaningful submissions, and I understood you about the existence of, of other alternatives. It, it, exactly, other other sources of evidence, and, and in the in the particular level of detail of providing uh, a transcript that would be coded. Uh, to indicate, you know, which which portions of or which which events that have happened uh, in the in the cockpit either would be confirmed on the FDR in terms of the time that the that the plane uh, changed uh, uh, altitudes, etc., or would be found in other other uh, elements that the parties uh, could rely on that aren't uh, covered by the privilege in twenty eight six uh, in twenty eight uh, in section twenty eight. And as to the remedy you are asking for, uh, you say. Uh, that uh, we should re return the file to a chamber's judge, but not the same judge. As the chamber's judge in this case has, has essentially already reached a number of conclusions uh, with respect to the importance of the privilege and the events and circumstances related to the, uh, the public interest in the administration of justice. And so our submission is in, in, a, in a case like this, it's appropriate for a, a fresh look uh, at the CVR and the circumstances. And Mr. Taylor, may I ask you, what, how would you have us think about uh, the fact that the CVR um, or can be used indirectly uh, to refresh the recollections of the pilots and what that does to the privilege that you're asserting? I mean, it, what, that was a key factor for the Court of Appeal in the Air France decision, um, and I, I wonder what you would uh, say about that. Uh, I, I would say in a case like that, it would be, it would be a, a factor going to uh, the ability of the adversarial process to, to, to essentially deal with the frailty of memory that, uh, that, is, that, is, that is present in the litigation. Um, in this case, unlike in Air France, the pilots did not require uh, their memory to be refreshed by the CVR. And, and uh, to my knowledge, haven't, the only parties to have listened to the CVR are the TSB investigators and the chamber's judge. Uh, so in this case, uh, the less intrusive uh, method of having reference to, for instance, uh, internal notes at Air Canada uh, regarding a safety investigation that occurred after the, uh, after the, the occurrence or uh, obtaining under the TSB regulations uh, the pilot's own statement uh, to the TSB would be less intrusive ways of refreshing their memories to enable them to participate in the, uh, in the process. Um, one, one comment I'd like to make on the uh, on the, the trial on the on the chamber's judge's comments on the uh, 
ability to understand uh, the, um, the CVR and that that is dispositive in the respondent's submissions of this part of the TSB's appeal is just to emphasize that providing technical assistance was only one element of the submissions the TSB wanted to make. Uh, the other was, as I've mentioned, to provide that coded transcript to show uh, where all of the content of the CVR could be found in other evidence. And, and just with respect to the nature of the trial judge's conclusion on his ability to understand and whether he knew what he didn't know, uh, the conclusions are at tab 14a of our condensed book. Um, and they're, they're quite general and they don't reflect the complexity of the CVR content, which was noted uh, by Justice Stravi and Air France at paragraph 111. That's at tab 14b of our condensed book. And so paragraph 111, uh, Justice Strathy says the recording, although enhanced for the last 30 minutes of the flight, is not particularly easy for a layperson to follow. However, the transcript provides a useful tool for understanding the recording. The recording and the transcript would be readily comprehensible to an experienced aviation expert uh, or pilot. And, and we say those, those circumstances are at play in this case as well. And that's evident uh, under tab 14C, we have pages two to six of the TSB's report. Uh, which essentially summarized the events uh, of the, uh, the, the, the final, uh, final half hour or so of flight AC624. And those, those are quite technical uh, in, in nature, the, uh, the, the events that are summarized. And we, we know from the submissions in this case that the CVR played some role in the TSB uh, you know, creating this summary. And, and we would even say in the respondent NAV Canada summary of the facts uh, in its factum, which are under paragraphs 14D, Again, it's a further indication of the technical nature uh, of what the court was doing, uh, dealing with in, uh, in this case. And so no noting the time, uh, Chief Justice, Justices, um, I just note that, it, again, the TSB asked the court to allow the appeal and restore the protection Parliament intended to confer on onboard recordings. It's for Parliament and not the courts to determine the value of protections provided to the integrity of safe safety investigations. Uh, we also ask the court to confirm that courts and coroners may receive the benefit of full submissions from the TSB on an onboard recordings content when determining that the privilege should be pierced. Uh, as is noted in our factum, the TSB brought this appeal to defend the important privileges created under the TSB Act. Uh, given the public interest is engaged and the TSB does not have an interest in the underlying class action, it seeks no costs and asks that no costs be awarded against it. And I just note that the respondent, NAV Canada, has asked for costs throughout, uh, but there's no basis for the court to interfere with the lower court's disposition of costs, uh, as the TSB is seeking no costs if it succeeds, and the lower courts uh, ordered none. Uh, subject to any further questions, Chief Justice, Justices, those are my submissions. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Taylor. Mr. Christopher uh, Ruthen. Thank you, Justices. As you know, the issue in this appeal is whether the privilege in the CVR is outweighed by the interests of the administration of justice. Uh, on behalf of the Air Canada Pilot Submission, I, uh, Pilot Association, I have two submissions to make today. Uh, the first concerns privacy and the second concerns safety. Uh, on privacy, in discussing the importance of the privilege, all parties to this appeal have acknowledged that the privilege exists in part to protect the privacy interests of the flight crew. Uh, in so doing, however, both the lower courts and most parties have focused on the actual content of the pilot's conversation in this case, and whether the pilots were discussing quote-unquote personal things. This too narrowly defines the privacy interests behind the privilege. Uh, this too narrow conception of privacy is best exemplified in the motions judge's statement that the CVR, quote, does not contain any private or scandalous material. Uh, well, with respect, the CVR certainly contains private material. 
What the motions judge and other parties to this appeal have done is to restrict privacy as a concept to the disclosure of personal information touching upon core biographical information. But privacy is about more than protection against disclosure of core biographical information. Is there a privacy interest in what is the rate of our dissent? Yes. I would like uh, an explanation of that. <laughs> so would I. Yeah, there are, there are two separate privacy interests in even statements such as, such as that. The first is control over personal information. Personal information, though, is more than and is wider than core biographical information. And you'll see this in the, for example, in the DAG decision uh, at paragraph 94, which is at tab three of the condensed book, that, core, that uh, personal information includes a wide array of, uh, of information, including opinions held about the job performance of other people. And so that, you know, Justice Rowe, that statement that you've made is a form of personal information. But the second and more important privacy interest impacted by even that particular statement is a freedom from surveillance. That the act of surveillance in itself is privacy invasive activity. You're a pilot in a jet. Of course you're gonna be surveilled. I mean, oh, I can, say, can we just take a step back and, and take a look at what's going on? And Justice, is of course you're going to be um, supervised, and of course you're going to be observed, which is true in any workplace. But there is a material difference between constant surveillance on the one hand and supervision and observation on the other. In this particular context, in this particular workplace, there is a justification for the surveillance, and that justification is safety. The uh, justification for the, uh, the surveillance is uh, for the purpose of investigating safety incidents after the fact and be able to correct in a prospective manner uh, incidents that have occurred during the course of a flight. May I ask, but, may I interrupt and ask this question? Of course. How do we go about measuring the privacy interest when there, it's kind of, well, it's required that these CVRs be placed in, in the uh, aircraft. So there's a law making the, the CVR uh, mandatory. And so does that impact on, on the privacy of the people that are being um, caught speaking? It certainly makes it difficult to use the normal terminology that we use of a reasonable expectation of privacy. That when there's a law that requires surveillance, obviously in a, you know, in a normal sense, there's going to be no reasonable expectation of privacy in the sense that the surveillance is, is unexpected. But as this court pointed out in Jarvis, um, the fact that, you, you know, that you're in a public place where you know that you could be recorded does not necessarily mean uh, that the recording or the surveillance has no impact on your privacy. Uh, so first, yes, of course it makes the difference in we can't think about this as a reasonable expectation of privacy in that normal sense. But second, we have to compare it to this is privileged as well. The parliament has said not only are we going to put the cockpit voice recorder in, not only are we going to require this surveillance, but then we are going to privilege it. Uh, as well. So when examining the privacy impact, it's not just the fact that pilots, of course, know that they're being surveilled and know that there is surveillance going on, 
but it's also that uh, they are given comfort in knowing that the surveillance, uh, the product of that surveillance is itself privileged. And the purpose behind that is, in a sense, to protect the privacy interests of pilots, because this act of surveillance is so privacy invasive in and of itself uh, that it warrants uh, reflection, which Parliament has done, in order to protect the privacy interests of pilots. Uh, that this uh, surveillance, in a way, it is warranted as a result of the uh, safety-sensitive nature of this position, but only to that extent. How does the application of the sterile cockpit rules uh, impact all of this? Because it seems to me it's quite an unusual situation. You know you're being surveilled. You know uh, that uh, there are sterile cockpit, cockpit rules in effect. So really, we're dealing with, uh, with purely operational matters at this point. Uh, and Justice, that, of course, goes back to one of the first points I made, which was that the privacy interests at stake are more than just uh, what I've called core biographical information, borrowing from uh, this court's decision in Sherman Estate, that during the sterile cockpit period, the pilots are not supposed to be talking about their core biographical uh, information, that's a, that sort of personal information. But they're still discussing other things that do have a privacy interest involved in them that do have uh, meet the definition of personal information in other respects uh, as well. Uh, and second, I'll say as well that the the concerns about or the expression of concerns about the sterile cockpit, I think we need to be careful that we're not uh, suggesting that uh, in light of the circumstances, you should have known better. Um, and if you have nothing to hide, why are you concerned about this? If you actually complied with the sterile cockpit rule, why are you concerned about personal information? I think we need to be careful not to, to make that kind of a suggestion either, uh, because you know, that sort of suggestion has been used to justify surveillance in other uh, respects that we don't allow. What, what, the about, the idea, what about the idea that the um, publication of the report could be as serious, if not more serious, an invasion of privacy. Certainly on these, if one, if we were to extend it beyond the core biographical information, some of that might come up in the report. What, what's your thought, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I guess I'll say first, it, having read the report, I don't think it did in this case. Uh, the report, um, it, this particular, you know, using this specific report as an example, uh, it recorded actions and activities not necessarily the statements that were made or the verbal uh, statements that were made in the cockpit. And there's a difference between, uh, between those two. Well, I'm thinking specifically, of course, in this case, but I'm thinking of Justice Strathy's point. He makes the point in Air France as a, as a general matter at paragraph 133. He compares, the, he compares the pilot's general interest in privacy and, and then asks whether the, the report, as much as the CVR, is a menace to it. And, and I suppose I'll say the same thing, that the report disclose, discloses actions and activities, not necessarily uh, the statements made, and that there is a different privacy interest in the actions versus the statements. The final point I wanted to make was uh, about safety in this case, that this is the privilege in the CVR is not just privacy for privacy's sake, uh, that it is privacy for safety's sake. And I'd like to remind the court of the evidence of the Transportation Safety Board, 
equal notice the only participant in this appeal without uh, a stake in the ultimate outcome of, the, of this litigation, where uh, they have identified uh, through the affidavit of Jean Laporte at paragraphs 85 through 89, uh, the specific harm that has been occurring as a result of um, limiting the use of this privilege or as a result of disclosing the CVR in other contexts and other litigation. Uh, as a, a final point unrelated to both uh, privacy and safety, I noted that the plaintiffs proposed to rely upon the Scottish decision, the Lord Advocates uh, case. I wanted to remind this court that at paragraph 58 of that decision, uh, the Scottish court said specifically this case will create no precedent, uh, which is why the English courts in the various Sussex decisions declined to even consider the Lord Advocates uh, case. Specifically, if you look at paragraph 28 of the 2016 uh, version of the uh, Sussex decisions. Subject to any questions, those are the association's submissions. Thank you very much. The court will take its morning break, 15 minutes. Thank you. Be seated, Mr. Hubbard. Good morning, uh, Chief Justice and Justices. Uh, let me start uh, with a roadmap, if I may. I will begin by addressing the procedure uh, for an application for production under Section 28 sub 6 including the board's submission that it is entitled uh, to make submissions in the absence of the parties. I will then address uh, the substantive test for production, uh, what we say it is and why. My colleague, Maitre Poupard, uh, will then address the French language version of section 28 sub 6, and uh, her submissions will be in French, uh, but she is uh, pleased to accept questions in either French or English. So let me start then with uh, the procedure under section 28 sub 6. How does this work? There are four steps. The first step is that if the board is not already a party, it is entitled to notice of the application. However, notably, there's nothing in section 28 that requires the board to intervene and oppose production. And so this goes to my friend's submission about the structure of the act and whether there's some primacy afforded to the board itself. In the context of section 28 sub 6, the provision implicitly affords for the possibility 
that there may be applications where the board has absolutely no role at all and does not intervene. So that's the first step, notice to the board. Second step is that the judge hearing the application reviews the recording alone, just like judges and often review materials. Mr. Yes, Robert, Justice? I just want to go back to your first point when you said that there is no obligation for the board uh, to intervene. Uh, what about the significance of Section 28.4, where the board uh, shall not knowingly communicate or permit to be communicated to anyone? It is subject, yes. of, of course, to subsection 5, but uh, does it have a significance about the obligation of the board to try to protect the, uh, the privilege? I say no, Justice Cote. I, I think that provision is directed at ensuring that the board in the course of its own investigation is not knowingly disclosing that information. But when we look at section 28 sub 6, my, my simple point is while notice is required, there's no obligation for the board in my submission to attend and oppose production in every, in, uh, every, every case. That's okay. my simple point. Um, the second uh, step is, as I say, that the judge here in the application reviews the recording alone, uh, uh, just like judges do uh, when they're dealing with solicitor client materials and trying to determine whether those are privileged and, uh, and whether they're not. And, and so the judge often in those circumstances reviews the uh, privileged or purportedly privileged materials alone before receiving submissions from counsel. The third step is that the judge then hears submissions uh, regarding whether the statutory test for production is met. And if the board decides to intervene uh, in the application, that includes receiving submissions from the board. And, and for reasons that I'll come back to, all of those submissions are made in the usual way, in, in inter-parties. The fourth would, step- Can I just ask you, sorry, the, would you agree that, and I'm looking at the English version here, sub six, um, sub B, that there is that the board um, must be given an opportunity to make submissions. The board must be given an opportunity to make uh, submissions, uh, Justice Karakasanis, but certainly not in uh, private, behind closed doors, with the judge. Okay, I understand your submissions. So the fourth step, as I say, is if the judge concludes that the recording should be produced, uh, the judge is also required to consider whether there are any additional. Uh, restrictions or conditions that are appropriate to try to mitigate the impact on the statutory privilege. Can I ask so you, at, at, sorry, yes. I, I'm sorry to trouble you, but I, uh, let me just ask you this question. Um, given that the whole purpose of the review of the recording and the uh, receipt of submissions from the board um, is to determine whether the privilege ought to be pierced, and that is a focus on the contents, which are privileged at that point in time. Um, does it not make sense to have the board make submissions uh, in private with respect to privileged information? No, no, Justice Karakasanis, I, I respectfully say that it, it doesn't make sense. And, and I say that for two reasons, which I wanna unpack for you. The first is there's no jurisdiction for that departure from a fundamental principle of our judicial system, the audial term part and principle. And in addition, as I'll come to, there, there is no practical purpose requiring 
that, uh, uh, that significant deviation. So, does, so let, let the, me unpack both of those, okay. Justice. Because the implication uh, of saying there's no jurisdiction, you're not suggesting there wouldn't be a discretion. I, I'm, I'm going to address, uh, so Justice, I'm going to address both the statutory jurisdiction and, and my friend's submissions in that respect, and I'll also touch on inherent jurisdiction, which, uh, which he's also raised. So, so let, let me start first with statutory jurisdiction. Um, Parliament must, as, as we say in our materials, and, and as this court has confirmed, use clear language to authorize ex-party proceedings and a, and, a, and a departure from the audio alterum partum principle, and, and it's not done so in this case. The, the parliaments used the term in camera. It did not use ex parte. In camera means in the absence of the public. It has nothing to do with the parties. And whether the party has notice is also relevant. There are many examples of situations in which ex parte proceedings uh, are on notice. And this court's decision in Bassey is an example of that. Mr. So Mr. Robert, sorry again to interrupt, but if in camera means in the absence of the public and not in the absence of the parties, and I tend to agree with you on that. Uh, does it go as far to say that given the fact that it is clear that the chamber's judge has the right to listen to the recording in camera, that the parties should be present when he listen uh, to the recording in camera? No, uh, Justice Cote, the, the public is excluded because of the addition of the words in camera. And, and perhaps uh, that's belt and suspenders, but the reason the parties are not able to be there with the judge when he or she reviews uh, the recording is the broader operation of section 28, which establishes a privilege and says that no one is entitled to view the recording unless and until the judge makes a, a, a decision uh, that it can be produced under section 28 mm -hmm. sub six. So it's the operation of, of, the, of the privilege itself that precludes the parties from being present uh, during uh, that review uh, in my submission, Justice. So uh, our submission is that if Parliament wanted the board to make ex parte submissions, uh, it would have done so expressly just as it does in other portions of this act in section 19 sub three, and just as it has in other uh, federal statutes, uh, such as section 52 of the Access to Information Act. I, I guess I'm still struggling with this because the, you've said that it's the scheme of the act which imposes the privilege, which is what requires that the hearing be in camera. But the board is privy to that privilege. They have privilege as well. So I'm just, again, because the whole purpose of the review is to determine whether that privilege ought to be set aside, doesn't the court need to have submissions about the contents, about whether to put aside the privilege, or shouldn't the court at least have the discretion to do so? It, it's, you know, your justification is about privilege, but the board is within that sphere of privilege. So, Justice Kerkissan, my submission, and, and just to be clear, I say it's section 28 sub 2 that creates the privilege that precludes the parties, as opposed to the act more generally. Um, but, but my submission is um, that the, the judge does not have discretion under section 28 sub 6. So to the extent that the issue stated for this court was whether section 28 sub 6 mandates that the board be permitted to make uh, submissions uh, in camera with the judge alone, uh, we say that's incorrect and there's no discretion under the statute, although there may be uh, inherent jurisdiction uh, for the judge, which I'll, I'll, I'll address now. And I will come back as well, uh, Justice Kerr says, to I think the practical question you're asking, which is 
what, what don't we need is there some reason we need the board to go behind closed doors with the judge in order to properly execute this test and apply this test but but let me first uh, briefly address the inherent jurisdiction issue raised by my friend um, the issue as i say uh, stated in uh, the board's factum uh, for this court is whether the, st the statute section 28 sub 6 actually gives and entitles it uh, to make in-camera submissions in the presence uh, outside of the presence of the other parties. And, and, and that's the issue that's been decided by the courts below. That's the issue on which this court granted leave. Uh, up until two days ago in delivery of the condensed book, we, we never heard the board relying on inherent jurisdiction in support of its submission that it should be permitted to make ex parte submissions or submissions alone with the judge. And, and if the board had raised that issue of inherent jurisdiction at first instance, it, it is evident the chamber's judge would have declined to exercise it because he expressly concludes that he received evidence and written and oral submissions from the board and he reviewed the CVR recording and he was confident that he had no problem, no difficulty understanding its contents or how it relates to the issues in this case. And, and he expressly states that uh, in the event that he has jurisdiction, uh, he does not need to exercise it. He doesn't need further submissions for the board on an ex parte basis as well. So Mr. Herbert, I'm, coming back, I'm coming back to my question. You agreed that the judge had the right to listen to the recording alone. Yes. Because of the fact that it is written in camera in uh, 28.6. Uh, no, no, just to clarify, Justice Cote, we say it, the review is in the absence of the public because of the words in camera. The review is in the absence of the parties by virtue of uh, the operation of section 28 sub 2, which establishes the privilege. And so Airbus, for instance, is not entitled to see that recording while the judge reviews it because the judge hasn't yet made a decision about whether to disclose it for purposes of the, uh, of the litigation. So if the judge has the right in virtue of 28.2 or because of 28.2 to be alone in listening to the recording, what prevents, what is the problem with having uh, the board making its submissions in order to be meaningful when the board has to go to the contents of the, of the submissions, as my colleague uh, Justice Karakatsanis said. What's the problem with that, with the judge doing that alone with the parties, with the board, and then summarize to the parties to the extent he can without disclosing the information? There's a very different, uh, there's a very significant distinction, Justice Cote, um, between simply reviewing the recording and then uh, in camera or alone, and then also permitting the, the board to come in behind closed doors and be there and make submissions. So there's a, a fundamental distinction between the review of the recording and the submissions by the board. A and so we say, number one, there's no reason why the board needs to be behind closed doors with the judge. There, there, the, the, the board does not need ex parte submissions to explain what it is, what its role is, what the CVR is, how it's used in its investigations, any specific concerns the board might have about production in this case, it can even use timestamps to reference the portions of the recording uh, that it is specifically concerned about. It can answer questions about uh, technical questions that the judge may have. But, but the board, and I'll come back to this particular case, the board has not as a general matter permitted or, or identified any reason why it has to go behind closed doors ex partes. Well, and, and there was none identified in this case. Mr. Even, Mr. Hubbard, Mr. Hubbard your, your colleague said I'm not sure it's, it's right, but he said the in-camera um, uh, proceeding is necessary 
uh, so that the board could point to other sources. Um, well, that, and I, it wasn't plain to me why that couldn't be done in open court, but, but that was the reason that he gave. Yes, and, and, and so let, let me address that submission. Uh, uh, so the board points to, so the background is the moving parties did an analysis of the discovery evidence of the pilots and an analysis of the board's public investigation report. And based on that identified gaps in the evidence, which uh, the moving party said must have come from the CVR in some way. And, and the challenge for the board at the courts below was to point to other evidence to show that those gaps, at least the important ones, were filled. And you don't need to go behind closed doors in order to point to non-privileged evidence, whether it's in the record or elsewhere, that you say addresses those gaps. So, so that, that submission doesn't uh, respectfully doesn't make any sense. And, and the second issue um, uh, the board raises is the FDR. And there was some discussion about that this morning as well. The flight data recorder records data, airspeed, direction, information like that. It does not record uh, the CVR evidence identified by the chamber's judge, such as at paragraph 23 uh, of, of his reasons, flying officers' perceptions, observations, considerations, and decision-making in electing to land where they did, when they did, and the manner in which they elected to execute the landing central to the action uh, of the plaintiffs. And at paragraph 29, flying crews communications relevant and material to the board's determination as to causation. So there's critical information on the CVR that the chamber's judge concluded is relevant and goes to the issues in this litigation of both liability and causation. And he found as a fact after reviewing uh, the gaps or the CVR that there were gaps in, in the other, other evidence that were important to issues in litigation and could not be otherwise filled. The board says that they did not have the opportunity to present everything he wanted to present it to the, the judge regarding precisely that the other means to get the evidence. And they say that in order to make that, uh, that presentation meaningful, that uh, you could not be there. They are saying well, that to us. So I, I, I know they're saying that, Justice Cote. E even issues of solicitor-client privilege, which this court has said is a near absolute privilege, are, are, not, are not always dealt with on an ex parte basis. Sometimes they uh, are. It, I can tell you that sometimes they are. The judge is alone in the room with the lawyer and reading the legal opinion, and the other side is not there. So, so, sometimes they are, but not always the case. And we provided examples in our materials of cases where that was not required. And, and I'll give you another example, which is under the Access to Information Act, where we're where, where dealing with issues of, of uh, international uh, intelligence and state secrets. E even in that instance, ex parte submissions are not automatically required by the statute. So, so I say if our normal court processes are sufficient to deal with issues of solicitor-client privilege and near-absolute privilege, state secrets, international intelligence, surely our normal court processes are adequate to deal with the board's reasonable submissions under Section 28. Um, unless there are any uh, questions, Justices, I uh, will turn then to my uh, submissions regarding the test for production under Section 28 sub 6. Uh, I'll start by addressing exactly what we say the test is. 
And uh, I want to also address the suggestion uh, in the board's materials that it somehow eviscerates or undermines the privilege itself. The, the test is clearly a balancing test. The court is expressly required to consider and weigh two interests, the public interest in the administration of justice and the importance of the privilege. And if the first outweighs the second in the circumstances of the specific case, then section 28 sub 6 mandates of the court shall order production. So with respect to the first interest, uh, the administration of justice, it is generally focused as we've seen in the cases on the integrity of the fact finding process. And the second interest, the importance of the privilege is impacted by the nature of the proceeding. And so my friend, uh, Mr. Taylor took you to the Dubbin Commission report, which is the origin of this privilege. And uh, he took you to the criminal, uh, uh, the section dealing with criminal proceedings. If he had taken you to the section dealing with civil proceedings like this, you'd see that the, the primary purpose for the privilege as conceived by the Dubbin Commission was actually protection of privacy. And, and he certainly afforded for the possibility that there may be safety issues engaged, but it was pr primarily one of privacy. And, and, and the criminal and discipline proceedings, the Dubbin Commission report also notes, raise different considerations. And they do so because of the right against self-incrimination and the possibility if the, that if you produce the recording, it may undermine that right. So importantly, that issue of, of self-incrimination does not arise in, in civil proceedings like this case. And if the pilots had a recollection of all of the operational discussions on the CBR, they would have been dis uh, obliged during the examination for discovery process to, to testify to those. To subsection subsection it, 6 refers to the importance of the privilege attached to the onboard recording by virtue of this section. Yes, Justice and, and I'm wondering if, if you could speak to the language of by virtue of this section. Yes, so you've anticipated my next line, Justice Rowe. The, 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 the board talks to you about the importance of the statute itself and the overall goals. And I'm not saying that's irrelevant, but when you're looking at the importance of the privilege, the par parliament does direct us to the, to the importance uh, by virtue of this provision. And as I say, in the context of a civil proceeding, Justice Dubbin and the Dubbin Commission indicated that that was primarily, I apologize, Justice Brown. Um, That's all right. Um, uh, in the context of a civil proceeding, that purpose is primarily, uh, is primarily uh, protection of privacy interests. And, and uh, so it's in that context that you should be looking uh, and assessing this. But, but I'm wondering if so, there's something in the section where it says, by virtue of this section, the section talks about access of the board who requests the, uh, the recording for the purposes of an investigation. So surely an investigation is also part of the purpose. That is well, that's, that's fair, and, and we afford, and, and, and just, uh, Justice Dubbin certainly afforded for the possibility that other issues will be engaged. Right. And, and, and so um, let me give you some examples uh, of, of those, because it goes to this uh, submission as well. Uh, about whether uh, the privilege is eviscerated by the tests uh, that we have uh, identified. A and so we say that in, in this instance, production will be refused if the recording does not contain relevant evidence regarding material issues. And, and so, for example, if the recording was purely private pilot communications, it would not be produced. If it was mixed private and operational, then the judge has the ability to redact the private irrelevant portions. 
even if the material is relevant uh, uh, to important issues, it, it, it may still be excluded if it's unnecessary because there are other reliable sources of the information. So for example, if the pilots had a reliable recollection of the important events. And, and the Hyde Park case is actually a, an example of a civil case where uh, the balancing <coughs> test did not lead to uh, production of the courting because it was found to be of little evidentiary value and not crucial. Can I just pull and, you back to that, to that um, and I'm sorry, I'm interrupting the flow of your submission, but um, you mentioned on grounds that it's unnecessary. And necessity seems to me to be something that we ought to be thinking about here. And I'm looking at paragraph 67 of the Chambers Judge's decision where he described gaps in uh, relevant and material facts. He says this information is important to having a complete understanding, um, which kind of raises two necessity points. Is, is, well, first, can you not fill some of these gaps by inference from physical evidence, from, from forensic evidence. And secondly, is completion the standard? Um, I, I mean, in, in, in how many major casualty events that you've litigated uh, have you known everything that there was to know about what everyone did at every time? In, in my submission uh, is that that uh, section uh, or, or paragraph 67 needs to be in the, read in the context of the entire reasons. And, and I, I agree that while there's reference there to it wouldn't be complete, it's clear from the Chamber's judge's reasons as a whole that, that he did not uh, hold that that is the standard that has to be met. And I, I agree that's not the standard. Uh, the, the, the record does not need to be complete. It does not need to be certain or perfect. But the Chamber's judge clearly found that there were gaps and not just immaterial gaps, that there are gaps with respect to important issues in the litigation uh, with respect to the issues of, of liability and causation. Well, fortunately, and, if we're reading the whole judgment in context, we only have to really read five paragraphs. That's what the Court of Appeal thought relevant at paragraph 84. So I'm wondering if from paragraph 64 through 68, those were the key paragraphs for the Court of Appeal, and I think fairly so, um, from the Chamber's judge's reasons. Um, can you point to me where the chamber's judge engaged in an analysis of the importance of the privilege? Well, uh, Justice, I say this. He, he certainly engaged in the analysis. Number one, he, he quoted and endorsed the extensive comments from Justice Straffy, which talk at length about the importance of the privilege. Uh, he certainly indicated uh, that he recognized the importance of the privilege was the second factor that he had to balance. And, and he considered every single factor raised by the board uh, in respect of uh, the importance of the privilege in the context of this case. And, and, and it's, not just, it's not just the importance of the privilege in the air, it's not just privacy rights in the air or safety concerns in the air. The, the board needs to identify a specific safety concern and, and then there has to be an assessment of whether there's evidence in support of that. And the, and the chamber's judge in this case considered that evidence, the concerns of safety, and, and concluded that it was speculative and it was outweighed by uh, the other evidence that he uh, preferred, including evidence from a, an international expert on aviation safety and the former uh, head of the U.S. National Transportation Safety Board. You say he Mr. relied Justice. on Air France, but Air France actually minimizes in a not in the specific circumstances of the case, but as, in general, um, privacy as a concern. Right? Paragraph 133 of Air France, 
says the privacy concern is generally illusory, generally illusory, because in at least some jurisdictions, the CVR transcripts included in the report of the investigating authority and others, it's routinely published. So not only does Air France um, not consider privacy, it, it really actually impugns it as a consideration generally. Uh, and well, yet that's what the chamber's judge relies on here. The, the chamber's judge in this case uh, uh, reviewed the CVR and concluded it doesn't engage the issue of privacy in, in respect of personal communications because it was during normal uh, sterile cockpit uh, uh, conditions and he, after reviewing the CVR confirmed there are no private communications in this place. And with respect to his analysis, I, I need to turn it over to my colleague, uh, well, but just, I would refer to paragraphs. It, just before you turn it over, it seems to me in paragraph 68 of the trial judge's decision <clears throat> that, albeit that it's pretty conclusory, he clearly indicates that he's very aware of the other side and the reasons uh, for the privilege. <laughs> and he, he doesn't go into a lot of detail. He doesn't have to explain them. He hits the main points, and he says, I'm perfectly aware of those, but in these particular circumstances, I'm satisfied in effect that this is critical evidence that is necessary for the proper resolution of this litigation, and it goes to the heart of the administration of justice. I mean, that's in a nutshell. Yes, Justice, and in addition, it's not surprising that he wouldn't spend much time talking about the privacy interests while acknowledging that they're important and part of the assessment, that he wouldn't spend much time talking about the privacy interests in a case where he's reviewed the CVR and concluded that there are no private communications and it's purely operational. Yeah, um, so with you, and is, it, is it Airbus' position that they absolutely need that uh, CVR to defend to this lawsuit? Because you are a defendant to the lawsuit and I don't know uh, where your file is presently. I presume that many expert reports have been filed and a lot of evidence have been filed on both sides. I don't know. But uh, is it your position that without that specific recording, Airbus cannot defend the lawsuit? Yeah, yeah, yes, um, uh, Justice Cote. And, and for that, I'd refer you to our uh, condensed book where we actually have included the chart of the analysis uh, that I mentioned earlier. There are 31 gaps in the evidence that we identified based on, uh, based on uh, our analysis of the discovery transcripts and the CVR, uh, or sorry, the board's report. And so yes, we do say that is important evidence and that was indeed a factual finding made by the judge in this case, which uh, we respectfully say should be given deference. So, and may so I with just that, follow, I do need- I just have a question here to follow up. In terms of the criteria of the evidence being necessary, um, uh, it can be expected that a pers uh, people in your position would say we need this to defend or we need this to pursue. Uh, you've identified 31 gaps in your chart, but um, won't there always be necessity according to the, the test that you're proposing? And what I'm saying here is um, it, even if you can't po point to gaps and you were very adept at doing it, um, isn't the next uh, way you would argue this is to say, even though the record is full, we can't identify gaps, we need the recording to cross-examine the pilot on what was said, or we need the recording to fairly uh, challenge the pilot's uh, memory that may have been 
refreshed uh, from a report or whatever. Isn't there just a constant um, a constellation of arguments that would say it's always necessary to defend or to pursue? Justice Martin, I, I say that's answered by the in-camera review of the CVR by the judge. And so if in this case the, uh, the pilots came forward and said, we have a recollection of all of the important events and they were examined on that, and the judge reviewed the CVR and concluded that their evidence with respect to the important matters was consistent with it and not undermined it, I, I say that would be an instance where the judge would say that the disclosure is, is not appropriate in this case. So, so um, I do uh, uh, wish then to turn it over to my colleague, Maitre Pupar, to address uh, the French language uh, version. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. And now, Mr. Jujan. Chief Justice, Justices, I'd now like to raise the issue of the interpretation of bilingual uh, legislation. As you're aware, there is equality of status between the French and the English versions of any federal legislation, such that what is crucial is being interested in both versions when one needs to determine the common meaning and uh, intentions of the legislators. Uh, now, in certain cases, uh, the court has determined that common meaning trumps other considerations. For example, in the Queen versus Mark, tab 12, Justice Basterache, after alluding to and analyzing the French version in the case at hand, concluded that it was unnecessary to turn to other legislative uh, interpretive rules. What's of capital importance in this case is that there is not the expression ex parte or in the absence of parties in either version of 28 sub 6 of the Act. They are completely absent, those terms. Earlier, the meaning of those terms was alluded to, i.e. the meaning of the term in camera, and ex parte, which are very well-known legal terms. In the absence of the public is uh, in camera, and ex parte meaning that one party is excluded. Sorry, if I could just come back to the question I asked of your colleague earlier, says the Justice. I agree that uh, in camera means in the absence of the public and not necessarily in the absence of the parties, but how is it that we all take it for granted that the Justice may listen alone to the recording, whereas in the French version, it states clearly, review it uh, in camera. So that, by extrapolation, means in public, but with the parties in the room. And yet we all agree that that would be a tad illogical that the justice would listen to the recording with the parties in the room. Absolutely. And that's why we need to turn back to 28.2, which explains the privilege. And as you explained, Justice Kuti, were we to fail to proceed in that manner, well, then we wouldn't be factoring in the privilege whatsoever. But by factoring in 28.2 and C, until the justice has made a decision to make the recording available or not, it's necessary and implicit uh, that the justice would have to listen to the recording alone. 
question. Just to put your remarks in context, Ms. Maitre Poupou, are you meaning by what you say that there is no discordance between the French and the English version, or are you saying that uh, one needs to give uh, precedence uh, to the clearest of the two texts? What is your stance at the end of the day, and what about the infamous uh, debate about the comma in the English uh, text, because what you're saying will depend on all of that, won't it? If there's discordance, there are rules that are apply. If there is no discordance, other, another set of rules apply. Response. Well, in this particular case, there is no disparity or discordance between both versions, because neither version refers to ex parte or in the absence of parties. That is very clear and straightforward. There is no discordance on that note. There is an ancillary argument. If we take it for granted that there is some ambiguity uh, to do with the comma, at that particular juncture, one needs to turn to the common meaning. And if you look at the common meaning, well, for two reasons, the French version must be favoured. Number one, the French version is clear and unequivocal. Secondly, it is the most restrained version when it comes to the violation of a core principle of natural justice, ad eterum partum. So you are entirely and absolutely right. Our main contention is that to the extent that ex parte in, in the absence of parties is absent, is not there, there is no ambiguity and therefore by extension, ergo, one has to turn to the common meaning. Thank you very much, uh, but uh, just to tack on to what you've just said, and uh, thanks for your answer, but in your factum at paragraph 60, you allude to the Aeronautics Act, uh, and you state that the French version, if I've understood you correctly, is identical to uh, what concerns us here, but that the English version is in fact not identical. I'm trying to get a handle on your point there. If you're saying or intimating that uh, Parliament uh, has uh, changed the formulation in another Act, that would uh, suggest uh, that the, this uh, particular distinction was one that was sought after or desired by Parliament. Response. Well, the French version is identical at 22 sub 8. In fact, the turn in camera is later in the text, and it is our contention that moving that word or expression meets the requirement to make it consistent with the French version, which is a clear and unequivocal version. Now, these are two pieces of legislation that are similar, and therefore one can presume that the legislator sought to adopt a similar approach, and given that there was this change to the, or if there was this change to the English legislation to clarify the uh, ambiguity stemming from the comma, then I'd refer you to paragraph 39 of uh, the factum of the Attorney General, and that uh, comma stems from an historic relic to do with consolidation of legal text. So that's an important point to factor in when you consider in the interpretation of the English version vis-à-vis -vis the French version. Uh, 
Metro Pupa, your time has run out, but uh, given how enthusiastically my colleagues are asking you questions, I'll give you an additional 10 minutes uh, if you see fit. Well, thank you indeed. Now, the rule of natural law, partum, requires uh, clear clarity and unambiguity, and 26B is not clear. This is a requirement that has always existed, and I'd refer you to this court's decision in Alliance, which is at tab 10. Moreover, when it comes to inherent uh, jurisdiction, and this matter was raised earlier, uh, one does not meet uh, the test for exceptional uh, circumstances. And in Wellet, uh, my colleague demonstrates this clearly because there's reference made to a witness who has no recollection, and we find ourselves in that precise situation here. And the exceptions amount to experiment uh, uh, evidence, etc., uh, etc. Therefore, in closing, I would say that the justice in chambers was right by in finding that it sh he shouldn't allow the uh, board to make findings in the absence of the parties, that he had understood the recording and the CVR, that he had weighed up the two interests that are at play in the section. He had factored in all of the considerations and submissions submitted by the parties and the board. One has to give deference to his findings as well as to the weight that has been attributed to each factor, and I would conclude by saying that there is an order that protects this information. It is detailed in paragraph 33 of our factum, should you wish to read it. It's also in tab, under tab 12 of the compendium of the applicants. So obviously we would call on you to dismiss this appeal. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Maître. Good morning, uh, Chief Justice and Chief Justices. Sorry, I had a sound problem for a second there. Um, I represent the plaintiffs, uh, the class of passengers who were injured in this accident, and the CVR contains very important evidence that cannot be obtained elsewhere. So the outcome of the appeal is obviously important to m my clients. Uh, this, like any aviation accident, we say was not caused by a single action or decision, but by a combination of factors. Uh, in aircraft accident investigation, it's often referred to the Swiss cheese model, where you need slices of Swiss cheese to line up and a line to go through all of the holes to cause an accident. And if any of those lines, if any of those pieces of Swiss cheese move, the line can't go through, the accident is prevented. 
Um, so we have pleaded uh, fault on the part of all of the defendants, obviously, and the evidence uh, that we will get from the CVR is crucial to determining um, many of those issues. Um, what I intend to focus on today are Canada's international obligations uh, on the 28.6 sub C balancing test and why production in this case poses no threat to the importance of the privilege. Um, with respect to Canada's international obligations, as a starting point, I would say, despite the arguments raised by the TSB, there is in fact no need to go to international law to determine what tests should be applied below. And that is because the balancing test is clear and unambiguous on the uh, wording in the statute. But uh, if court does consider the international law, it does not support the TSB submission that it requires the application of some uh, higher standard than what has been applied below. Um, the starting point for that, uh, for what the international law does uh, require is Article 5.12 of Annex 13. Uh, the version in evidence in the court below is from 2016. It was enacted long after Canada enacted the uh, sections we're dealing with in this case. Uh, and, and the uh, version uh, that, that we have has changed over the years uh, in terms of amendments that have been made to Article 5.12 of Annex 13. Uh, there is no evidence that Commissioner Dubbin actually considered the version of Article 5.12 that was in effect at the time he made his recommendations. Uh, and I've also been unable to find evidence that that specific article was considered by Parliament in enacting or amending uh, the regulations at any time. Um, nevertheless, if we look at it, we will see that it does not impose a higher obligation than in Canada. The uh, test itself says that a competent authority designated by the state, which would be the court under 28.6 sub C, determines in accordance with national laws, which would be the wording of the test itself, uh, that the disclosure of documents or their use outweighs the likely adverse domestic and international impact such action may have on that or any future investigations. So it's explicitly a balancing test and it is worded slightly differently from our 28 six, uh, from our, our section 28 sub six sub, sub C. Uh, the international standard also applies to a variety of documents, including cockpit voice recorders, statements taken by investigators, uh, other documents collected by investigators during the investigation. Uh, and so by, the, by its very wording and by the fact that it applies to very different documents, it's clear that it has a flexible uh, approach. Uh, that is supported by um, other documents at, at the international level, which confirm that in interpretation that there should be a um, flexible approach to the application of the test that does not impose a particularly high standard. Uh, there have been two sets of guidance referred to by the parties. One is attachment E uh, that is referred to by Air Canada Pilots Association in its factum. Uh, that attachment is actually out of date now. That has been replaced by appendix two, uh, neither of which existed uh, at the time the legislation was passed uh, in the 80s. 
Um, finally, there is uh, document 10053, which is included uh, some excerpts from it uh, in uh, the um, in our condensed book. And a review of that document confirms absolutely that the uh, international community does not impose a particularly high standard for the production of CVRs. Uh, in fact, its guidance is consistent with the Air France approach. It specifically states that it is not aimed at restricting interested parties access to information nor to prevent the administration of justice. So it's really about balance. The international community also permits the release of CVR transcripts uh, for general access to information requests. So the international when, when you, community- When you say the international community also permits, you, you, you seem to suggest that there is a body which is superior to the Parliament of Canada in the making of laws with respect to aeronautics. Uh, that seems to be the implication. That is a bit different from saying that Canada has entered into certain treaty obligations and that there is a presumption that we will conform in our domestic legislation to those obligations. I agree, uh, Justice Rowe, and I did not mean to suggest that the international community is, has some sort of uh, greater value than Parliament. My point in making these submissions is to counter the TSB's argument that to comply with our international obligations, Canada must impose a higher standard than is imposed by the test. Um, I would like to refer briefly to the Scottish decision that is in my materials that council uh, pointed out says it will not create a precedent. That is an example of another court applying another balancing test. And that statement that it will not create a precedent, of course, I do not suggest that it does create a precedent in Canada. It is an example like all of the other international decisions, but that uh, statement has to be read in the context in which it was made, which is the uh, justice uh, dealing with the argument uh, that was made in that court that if production was made investi and investigators were routinely compelled to disclose the contents of the cockpit voice recording, uh, then it would create a precedent where it always happens. And this is at tab three, uh, page 10 of my condensed book. And uh, paragraph 58 in particular, uh, the judge writes, each case will turn on its own facts and circumstances. If these tests are met, it is the duty of the court to order disclosure. So that's the context in which that was made, that the judge was acknowledging that it was a balancing test. Now, the other issue I wanted to uh, deal with today is the, uh, that production does not actually harm the purposes of the privilege. And that's because there's a lot of work for the privilege to do other than uh, resist production in civil litigation. First example is uh, use in criminal cases. Um, the second is production in disciplinary proceedings. Third, and I submit this is the most important, it protects pilots from regular, regular eavesdropping by their employers. 
Uh, and finally, it continues to protect privacy in civil cases, even if it is produced. Uh, with respect to criminal cases, there is, of course, a principle in the administration of justice that no one should be required to incriminate themselves. And that is something that can be taken into account in applying the balancing test if a CVR were sought in a criminal case. Uh, similar reasoning would apply to disciplinary proceedings, and that is something that uh, Commissioner Dubbin noted uh, in his uh, recommendations that uh, there would be different factors to consider there than in a civil case. Uh, but the most important that I say is the daily protection from employer surveillance, and that's because it doesn't depend on an accident occurring where there is a CVR that is preserved. That is a very rare circumstance. Uh, I'm only aware of six decisions in Canada uh, where uh, there have been applications for a CVR. Uh, but something that isn't unusual is pilots flying every day with a CVR recording. And we can see from the evidence that that kind of uh, supervision, that kind of surveillance is really underlying a lot of the concerns from pilots. We also see it in the railway industry, uh, that those were the concerns identified to Parliament when changes were being made to introduce uh, recording devices to locomotives and to introduce procedures where employers could use those recording devices, uh, not just in the event of an accident, but for proactive safety. There's also a continued protection that the privilege provides even when a CVR is disclosed. Um, and that is because the court is required to consider imposing restrictions or conditions that are deemed appropriate in the case. Uh, such an order was made in this case. And the important provisions are this, that the production only goes to counsel for each party uh, and then counsel for each party can provide it to their uh, clients, full-time employees of their clients, uh, or their insurers, only if in the judgment of the solicitors of the party, disclosure is reasonably necessary for the purposes of advising their clients or advancing their interests in the action. So some of the concerns that are raised by uh, the Air Canada Pilots Association, for example, that even when CVRs are privileged, if information gets out there, employers could use them against their employees. That is taken uh, account of in this order, which uh, makes it very unlikely that somebody responsible for discipline would uh, have access to the CVR. Uh, the CVR, of course, must be reviewed as part of the balancing test and where there are private conversations, dealing with things that go to the core of privacy, uh, it's open for a judge to redact those. And we know that in this case, there were no, none of those uh, conversations. Um, I, I'd also like to um, address some of the questions that were asked of uh, the other parties. Um, and one in particular is whether Parliament left it for the court to determine the importance of the privilege or whether Parliament actually decided the importance of the privilege itself. Uh, I think it's clear that the fact that the same wording is used in the witness statement section and in a CVR uh, section answers that. In particular, both say that the importance of the privilege attached by virtue of this section, uh, 
and both of them say in the circumstances of the case. So the uh, issue is that a judge has to consider how important the privilege is uh, to resolve that question depending on the facts of the case. It may vary depending on whether the TSB has published a report and the TSB does not publish reports on every accident it investigates. So there may be cases where a CVR exists where the pilot's privacy has not actually been uh, already uh, infringed by virtue of publication of a TSB report that goes to the public that everyone out there can rely on. So that is a factor that can be considered in a balancing test. The issue there uh, then becomes, well, what is the importance of the privilege? And that is something that Parliament could have addressed, but it chose not to, in that it did leave it to a, a judge to determine on the facts of the case. There is no language in the Act saying, for example, the privilege created by this section is important to protect the privacy of pilots. It is important to ensure that the TSB has continued access to uh, future investigation materials. Uh, and because it's not there, it is clear that it is a, something for the court to consider on, on each case. Um, unless there are questions uh, from the court, I see that my time is close to expiring. Thank you very much. Stephen Ronan. Uh, thank you, Chief Justice and Justices. Uh, Justice Cote asked what the test is for production. It's clear that the test for production is as stated in Section 28.6c of the Act. The language of the test makes it clear that it is a balancing test that is applied with consideration of the circumstances of the case. The suggestion of any threshold factor, such as an exceptional circumstances test or a possibility of a miscarriage of justice test is not reflected in the language of the statute and is contrary to the balancing nature of the test. As Justice Jamal has already noted today, the Transportation Safety Board advocated for this type of test in Air France and it was correctly rejected by Justice Strathy and by the Ontario Court of Appeal. The introduction of such a threshold would tip the scales heavily toward privilege at the expense of the public interest in the proper administration of justice and should not be endorsed by this court. I think one of the concerns, and I take your point, but I don't want you to miss this if you have an opportunity to comment on it. One of the concerns is that the application judge relied on Air France heavily and Air France fails, along this argument, fails to provide appropriate weight, to, notably to privacy. And consequently, the balancing that you speak of here is problematic because the judge didn't balance the judge didn't take into account the privilege properly because in relying on Air France, there, there was something of a, 
a false balancing process. And if you look at the end of the judgment, the five or six conclusory paragraphs of the application judge's um, uh, judgment, that we don't have enough to rely upon to say that the statutory privilege was taken into account. So what, what do you say to that? First of all, uh, I, I disagree that um, the chamber's judge. Bearing in mind that you're bearing in mind that you're not to, supposed to get into the merits. It's it, what the, the, po the point is, the, the, the question is, is was there a misapprehension of the test that you're speaking to by the downplaying of the privacy interest? I, I don't believe so because the wording of the statute is clear that the... By the way, just so you're not inhibited, my apologies. I just realized you are a party. Yeah, yes, so, thank, so, thank so you, So be, be as partisan as you feel inclined to. My yes, apologies. thank you. No, no problem at all. Um, the, the point I was making before is that I, I don't believe that um, the chamber's judge uh, was blindly following the guidance from uh, Justice Strathy and Air France. I think he applied Air France and took guidance from it because of the similarities to the matter that was before him. With respect to the evaluation of the privilege, the language in the statute is clear that the importance of the privilege, which is it's presumed to be important, is to be evaluated in the circumstances of the case. And as uh, my friend for the plaintiffs just indicated, there are circumstances where the privilege may not be as important, including in a case like this or in Air France, where the TSB has already released a report that contains information about the pilots, which arguably diminishes the importance of the privacy interests at play. And I think we also need to account for the fact that the chamber's judge and Justice Strathy uh, put restrictions on the use of the CVR, um, which has to be considered in the evaluation of, of whether the privacy interests are actually impaired. So just to, just to see if I understand your point, and thank you for it, it's uh, assuming that Justice Duncan did make a mistake in relying on the privacy comments of, in Air France, that mistake which you, I understand you don't think it's a mistake, but if it were a mistake, wouldn't have had a consequence, in the consequences of this case, wouldn't have had an impact on the outcome. Is that, is that, is that am I getting your point? Well, I, I don't think it would have an impact on the outcome. It's clear that Justice Duncan considered uh, both parts of the test. He gave due consideration to the importance of privacy. The reason why he relied on the comments of Justice Strathy regarding privacy in Air France is because the TSB introduced evidence and made similar arguments in Air France and before Justice Duncan. And so he simply indicated that I, I agree with the analysis of Justice Strathy regarding what weight I should give to this information that the TSB has put before me regarding the importance of the privilege. Thank you very much. Michelle uh, Chai. Good afternoon. <clears throat> Good afternoon, Chief Justice and Justices. Uh, in the time that I have and subject to any questions uh, of the court, Halifax International Airport Authority would like to make brief submissions 
on deference and the findings by Justice Duncan. It is well-established law that a balancing exercise by a chamber's judge, like here, on an interlocutory motion is discretionary and entitled to considerable deference on appeal. I would like to briefly address some of the findings by Justice Duncan. First, with regards to the evidentiary gaps that uh, TSB argues Justice Duncan gave too much weight to, um, it is clear from a review of the hearing transcript that Justice Duncan was alive to this argument by the TSB because he repeatedly asked Airbus counsel whether the evidentiary gaps being identified were available from other sources. And as an example, I would refer the court to uh, volume two of the record, pages 402 to 403. Justice Duncan also asked TSB counsel what other sources of evidence there were to fill the gaps and TSB made submissions on those points. As my friends have said, Justice Duncan then found there were clear gaps in the evidence, particularly in the pilot's discovery evidence, and further found that the CVR was the only way to get that information necessary to answering important questions. Importantly, prior to making his decision, Justice Duncan listened to the contents of the CVR. The appeal court and this honorable court do not have that privilege. It was only after listening to the CVR that Justice Duncan concluded that the CVR was the only way to get the information missing in the evidence. This conclusion is a conclusion that only the chamber's judge could have made. Secondly, with regards to the alleged chilling effect on the TSB's ability to investigate and the privacy current concerns raised by Air Canada Pilots Association, I would submit that Justice Duncan did not just adopt Justice Strathy's comments in Air France. Uh, he also considered the evidence before him and held that there was little objective evidence offered in support of these assertions. And those references to um, his decision are at paragraphs 54 and 60. Again, this finding that there was little objective evidence of a chilling effect uh, was a discretionary decision by the chamber's judge. And at the risk of repeating some of the comments that my friends have made, um, both the TSB and the Air Canada Pilots Association argue that routine Sorry, sorry, paragraphs 54 and 60, did you say? Uh, yes, my lord. So 54 is... Uh, sorry, yes, uh, Justice Brown. Yeah, okay. Makes me feel like I'm home again. Um, paragraph 54 just recites uh, a big, long passage from, uh, from Société Air France. Yes, sorry. So then paragraph 60 right. is where uh, Justice Duncan uh, makes the comment that there was little objective evidence offered in support of the assertions being made by the TSB. But it's just simply, it's the assertion. It's not an assertion about, about 
privacy or about safety. It was, it was in response to an argument that privilege is being eroded by the release. It wasn't anything about the balancing that was to be done. It was about how it was being proposed to be done, I suppose. It, do, it doesn't actually go to what had to be considered on the other side. What, the assertion that he's referring to isn't that there's a privacy interest or that there's a safety or investigative interest. It's simply an assertion that the privilege is being eroded. It doesn't show that he actually considered the other side. Correct. Um, and I guess what I would say is that um, the TSB and Air Canada Pilots Association are arguing that um, the danger with the privilege being eroded is that there will be a chilling effect and um, uh, privacy concerns. I guess I have to read the judgment more contextually. Yes. Uh, and so if I may just uh, conclude. Uh, Please do so. In sum, uh, Justice Duncan reviewed and balanced the evidence on the record before him, including the CVR, and consistent with the statutory test set forth in Section 28, Sub 6 of the Act, concluded the public interest in the administration of justice outweighed the importance of the privilege. Justice Duncan's balancing, and accordingly his decision, is discretionary entitled to considerable deference. Those are my submissions. Thank you very Thank much. You. Mr. John Provart. Uh, good afternoon, uh, Chief Justice and Justices. By way of an overview, I have three main points uh, to make today on behalf of the Attorney General of Canada. And the first point is that the legislative history and evolution outlined in our factum provides contextual clues and insights into Parliament's purpose in enacting these provisions as well as what this court has called indicia of the proper interpretation. Second point is that for paragraph 28.6b of the Act, the legislative evolution supports the Court of Appeals interpretation that there's no right for the board to make in-camera ex parte submissions on disclosure prior to release. And any ambiguity that might remain with respect uh, to the current English text may be readily resolved through principles of bilingual interpretation in the common meaning derived from the clear and narrower French text. And the third point is with respect to paragraph 28.6c. And here, the legislative evolution and history show no real change in this provision over the past 40 years, despite requests by various stakeholders to limit or otherwise modify the scope for production of onboard recordings. And this constancy shows a legislative intention to maintain the balance this provision has struck between privilege and disclosure. And so there are two separate components to the legislative history I'm discussing today as part of the context for interpretation. A legislative evolution refers to how the formulation of a provision has changed over time. Legislative history refers to uh, the background material relating to the conception, the preparation, passage of the legislation. And that can include things like reports, analyses of commissions and committees, uh, can also include things like specific legislative proposals or proposed legislative amendments, including by interested parties at the committee stage, which then shed light on the purpose of the legislation. And that can also include parliamentary silence when parliament refuses to adopt such amendments 
And that's what's relevant in this case when we look at 28.6c. And that's what I'm going to turn to first. It's a simpler kind of analysis before getting into the uh, 28.6b. So as I noted in my overview, uh, the wording of paragraph 28.6c has not materially changed since its inception in 1979's Bill C-40, which was where we first saw this provision, continues to grant courts the power to order production and discovery of uh, CVRs or onboard recordings as they've now become, when the court or the coroner is satisfied that, quote, in the circumstances of the case, that the public interest and the proper administration of justice outweighs in importance the privilege attached to the onboard recordings by virtue of this section, end quote. And it goes on a little bit more. Now that's the case, notwithstanding the 1998 amendments to section 28.7 that the applant noted this morning, the extension of the privilege to various operators uh, in that section did not modify the court's ability to order disclosure in paragraph 28.6c. Uh, uh, which continues to apply notwithstanding anything in the section. That's, the, that's in the actual text. So throughout the legislative history, section 28.6 and its predecessors have been described as a compromise or a balance between the competing interests of adequate protection to ensure that evidence uh, will be forthcoming and respect for the general principle in favor of public disclosure and access to information. And we describe this in our factum in some detail. And in particular, when the current act, the CTAISB Act, was before the Parliamentary Committee in 1989, not all parties were satisfied with the existing privilege provisions. And we know that the pilots argued, much like they've argued today, that the privilege wasn't strong enough and they wanted an amendment to allow for the representatives to make representation on possible disclosure of the CVRs. Maritime lawyers, on the other hand, argued for a broader availability of recordings to anyone who made them and to victims of the accident or their heirs, uh, much like the plaintiffs in this case. So in the end, however, the bill passed with no changes and maintained the balance of the former Canadian Aviation Safety Board Act. And the maintenance of the existing test for disclosure for nearly 40 years, despite criticism and calls to amend it, as well as other amendments having been adopted like we've seen uh, in uh, section 30 for air traffic and air traffic control recordings under section 29. The maintenance uh, in the face of it strongly suggests a legislative intention to maintain the balance struck. So we say that in this sense, we, it's analogous to what we saw with respect to the copyright provisions in reference re broadcasting regulatory policy CRTC 2010-167 decision of this court in 2012. So now I'll turn to paragraph 28.6b and the board's right to make submissions prior to disclosure by court. Before, before uh, you go there, just before you go there, you're, you, the appellant here made a, an argument based on the presence of the word importance in the English text. I don't know if you heard that and I'm wondering if outweighs in importance is the equivalent of prépondérance in French and that there's no real difference between them. That would be my submission, Justice Kessier. It's uh, my understanding of prépondérance certainly would be that it is about one factor outweighing another, outweighing the importance of the factor. I don't see any distinction here or ambiguity that needs uh, resolution. They mean the same thing. And so then looking at, uh, turning to paragraph uh, 28.6b, uh, there's no discussion actually in the legislative history materials of the board's reasonable opportunity to make representations regarding the production of onboard recordings. 
and I wish I could sit down right now and that that would be the end of the story. But of course, that's not, there is something else to look at, which is the legislative evolution. And the legislative evolution here uh, helps explain the meaning of uh, and current structure of the existing provision. And you can see what the provision relating to disclosure of the CVR looked like when it first came into existence in 1983's Bill C-163 at paragraph 18 of our factum. And section 26.6 of the Canadian Aviation Safety Board Act was formatted as a long block paragraph. In fact, it's not even a paragraph, it's one very, very long sentence with many clauses and subclauses. And shortly thereafter, we know that the uh, Statutory Review Commission got to work uh, with the 1985 RSC process, and they ended up modifying the text here in a way which was not intended to affect substantive change, but in a way that was permitted by Section 6F of the Legislative Revision and Consolidation Act. And they were allowed to make, quote, minor improvements in the language of statutes as may be required to bring out more clearly the intention of Parliament. And you can see how the SRC, the Statutory Revision Committee Commission, fulfilled its mandate in the RSC version of the provision at page 11 of our factum. That's page 16 of the PDF. And what they did is that they broke the block provision of 1983 down into paragraphs to bring out more clearly the intention of Parliament. And they did that in both English and in French. And that intention was understood to be that Parliament had specified three things were to occur prior to disclosure of the CVR by a court or a coroner. And each was given its own paragraph under section 34.1 of the RSC text. A, the board would be given notice. B, there would be an in-camera examination of the CVR. And C, the CASB, the board at the time, would be, have an opportunity to make representations on production. So although this provision has obviously now been replaced by Section 28.6 of the current Act, the RSC version of this provision remains an important part of the context for reading the current legislation for several reasons. First, we know that the Review Commission, in the course of reviewing the entire corpus of federal legislation and with no interest beyond minor improvements to bring out more clearly the intention of Parliament, understood Parliament to have intended the in-camera requirement in this provision to apply to the court's review of the CVR and not to the board's right to make submissions. Second, the RSC version explains the genesis of the current structure, the paragraph formatting in the English text, at least, of section 28.6 of the current act. The difference is that the former third clause relating to the board's opportunity to make submissions has now been tacked on to the end of the, the B paragraph in the current English text, but the wording and the verb usage remain the same, save for the comma, the famous or infamous comma being added after in camera. And much has been made of this comma, but the weight to be given to it must be assessed in the full context of what I'm describing here about the legislative history or legislative evolution. And the third point is that at the Standing Committee in 1989, uh, when the new act was being, uh, was being, was being debated, uh, the submissions that were made at the time by Transport Canada uh, described the privilege provision uh, of the act as being a continuation of the former provisions in the Canadian Aviation Safety Board Act just they were becoming multimodal. So there's no indication of any legislative intent to change or clarify the existing interpretation of these provisions. So uh, I'm, I'm just about done, and my concluding point would be that 
setting aside ex parte, not being used in conjunction with the board's right to make submissions, the statutory revision commission's understanding remains a compelling one as the clearest of contextual understanding of parliamentary, parliamentary intent for these provisions in English at any rate. And we have the French text, which my friend Maître Poupard described uh, for you earlier. All so right. those are my submissions subject to any questions you might have. Thank you very much. Thank you. Any reply, uh, Mr. Taylor? Uh, th thank you, Chief Justice. Just four, four brief points in reply. Um, Council for Airbus uh, has suggested that there needs to be a clear and derogation claire in the legislative wording to enable the board to make uh, in-camera submissions to the motions judge. Uh, and, and in this case, the, the, the entire procedure for this in-camera consideration is not prescribed in Section 28. Uh, we don't have a reference, for instance, to submissions uh, between and among the parties, as has happened here. It's just a reference to a, a request for production of the CVR. And, and so the, the question of Parliament's purpose in, in, this, in this procedure falls to be determined on the normal principles of, uh, of, of, uh, of when, when procedures may be, uh, may be held in camera. And we have an excerpt from the Hunter decision from 1991 of the Federal Court of Appeal, which notes that common law situations where the confidentiality of a document are at stake is just exactly one of those situations where you may have in camera submissions. Uh, secondly, to the Attorney General of Canada's point uh, just now about the impact of the change in the revision, uh, I, I'd simply note, well, first, this is the, uh, the first time the submission has been made in this, in this matter. The, um, the, the Attorney General didn't, didn't participate before the courts below. But second, and, and more importantly, uh, the, the, the actual use of the, com the combination uh, to me is the most, or to the TSB, is the most clear statement of Parliament's intention. B addresses how the court will evaluate and understand uh, the CVR. It's done in camera, and it is to be done with the benefit of the board's submissions. And, uh, and the TSB would say it should be the benefit of uh, the board's uh, candid submissions, being able to speak to the entire content of the materials. Um, the third point has to do with the submission uh, that the pri privilege is not eviscerated. And, and the meaning of the word eviscerate is to remove something of its essential meaning. And the essential meaning of a privilege is to keep material out of litigation. And the test that we've seen adopted where uh, the, essentially the administration of justice is conceived as having a, a robust and, and complete understanding of the facts, notwithstanding the adversarial process not typically given that, and the privilege has little importance, leads to a test that looks an awful lot like uh, the test for production of third party uh, records. Uh, the further point uh, to be made is the submission from, from Airbus in particular that the trial judge has already made a finding as a matter of fact uh, that there were these gaps and, and we would say that finding is colored um, and, um, and, and, and hindered by the trial judge, by the chamber's judge's uh, position that what was required was this complete uh, understanding that the standard being applied was too, 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 uh, too stringent and there was a failure to consider the ordinary mechanisms under the adversarial process. And, and this failure is, is compounded by the board's inability to make in-camera submissions to point directly to uh, the content uh, of the CVR that could be found in other sources. And, and just on that point, I mean, I, I, have, I have not heard uh, or been able to understand how the board could make those submissions without revealing uh, the content of the CVR by saying, well, look here, uh, this this piece of evidence shows you what's on the CVR at this stage. That that will reveal the content, and pursuant to subsection 28.4, uh, the board is prohibited from doing that unless it's in the interest of uh, of, of transportation safety. It's prohibited from revealing uh, the content of the of the CVR. And, and the very last point I'd make is a technical sorry, one. Sorry, I I didn't understand that. If it that if the the board could point to other non-privileged sources without going into the details of what's in this 
in the online rec on, on board recording. Why could this not be say in o said in open court? So, so the, the issue with saying it in open court and doing what the TSP proposed to do in this case, which is to, to effectively code, code the CVR for the chamber's judge to show the chamber's judge where each other statement could be found, is if it were to be a matter of saying, well, on, on the CVR, um, you know, the fact is, is X about, uh, you know, when did the pilots know that a, f a prior flight had got in? And you say, well, you'll find this in, uh, in this other alternate source. But, you know, by putting those two things together in the submissions in open court, it reveals the content of the CVR, that that, that, that is on the CVR, as opposed to in the pilot's witness statement uh, or in a business record obtained. Uh, there's the, uh, uh, there's a, a, almost like a text message system that goes back and forth between the, um, between the, um, between the, um, uh, the, the, the Air Canada dispatch crew and the aircraft. And so, so that's, that's the issue is that the, that the TSB can't delve into the exact contents of the CVR. And you without, don't think that uh, the application judge could manage that delicate point? It, it, Justice Kazaro, it's, it's one example of many. There are, there are a number of technical details uh, in, in this case, and that's, you know, for, for ease of submissions, it's, it's one of the points uh, that comes up. And in fact, the discovery transcripts are clear despite you know, Airbus's uh, statement in its chart that the, the pilots did know that that, uh, that that flight had landed and did, uh, did speak to what they, uh, what they did in general terms, maybe not the specific terms they would have liked. Uh, just, just one technical clarification that the representative plaintiffs had suggested in a case where the TSB uh, doesn't, doesn't investigate, uh, there might not be a role for the TSB to make submissions. Uh, I just wanted to clarify, if the TSB has opted not to investigate a transportation occurrence, it does not come into possession of the CVR. Uh, the CVR, as, is in, as in this case, is seized as part of the investigation, and so the, the TSB won't retain that, uh, that particular piece of evidence uh, if it hasn't conducted an investigation. Um, subject to any questions, those are the TSB's submissions in reply. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Taylor. So uh, I'd like to thank counsel for their submissions. Uh, the court will take the case under advisement. The court is adjourned until tomorrow morning at 9.30 a.m.